0: Take a look on back a few decades past to a simpler time today.
1: That's right, everyone. Welcome back to 80s High, the podcast that brings together the super pop culture stars of the 80s to celebrate the most radical decade in history. We're your hosts. I'm Ben. And I'm Chris. And this
2: is 80s High. Welcome back, everybody. Ben, we only... Got together two people, like two creators. That's all we got. Oh man, I thought we'd at least have forty-eight and have to turn away another forty-eight. We were so secretive with the recording time and place that no one could figure it out. It was too top secret. We did too good of a job. That's uh, that's what we do here at Eighties High Podcast. We do such a good job, and we made it so super secret.
1: I'll I'll sing the high parts. I'm a ten. I used to be a tenor. I'll do tenor. You do the baritone, uh, the nice bassy vi- vibrato down so I'll there. So we'll
0: do the bo do bo 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 Yeah, right. Exactly. We'll make it good. you go. Ooh, wee, ooh, wee.
1: <laughs> Look, in homeroom today, I've, I've had a brush with a few 80s movie properties. I'm excited to just catch you up on real fast. It's been Great. some good, good titles people will be psyched about. A quick thing on the 80s subreddit, I saw a question, teenagers from the 80s, what was school and social life like? And there were some lists like last time of like, here's all the million things that made the 80s for high school. But the Mm -hmm. quick short answer, one of the most highest upvoted ones was Fast Times at Ridgemont High was very accurate. Oh,
2: interesting. So
1: just if you're wondering, high school life in the 80s, Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Okay. Myself, for the first time, I'm delving into the Lethal Weapon series. I've never seen those movies before. Yeah. The first one is awesome, and I'm about halfway through the second one. Okay. It's super good. Here's the last one, though. Because we're recording this right before Halloween, I did finally finish Once Bitten with Jim Carrey.
2: Oh, yeah. And? Movie's nuts.
1: But it is worth the watch just for the high school Halloween dance-off scene.
2: Okay. between
1: like Lauren Hutton, the the vampire lord and Karen Copen's the kind of girlfriend who's actually really good at dancing to what was the song? Hands Off by Maria Vidal. Okay, dude, just the choreography is great. It's fun. If you need like dirty dancing and footloose, but with vampires, it's fantastic. I love that. I mean, (laughs) who doesn't need all those things? (laughs) It's it was so timely. I mean, the rest of the movie is a bit rough and weird in places But like that dance scene was clutch at high school. Nice. That's great. Have any 80s or fun Halloween
2: things swooped in, got bitten you on the neck, got caught in your hair, anything? Well, okay, so at the time of this recording, we're about to release our episode on The Thing, which obviously you might have heard already. Now, uh, in that episode, Mikey, our guest host, had asked, hey, have you ever done a corn maze? And I said, <gasps> no, I had not. Oh? Uh, I can no longer say that because... Oh, really? Nice. Because this weekend... I went with some friends, and we went to this haunted attraction at a farm, and one of the cool things they had there was a really legit corn (gasps) maze, like super detailed, very dense, very twisty turny. I'd still be in it if we didn't have a map. Were there children out there? Did you encounter children of the corn? We did indeed encounter children of the corn. Someone walked out of the corn and nearly gave us all a heart attack. Oh, that's terrifying. Uh, It was great. It was interesting. It was a good time. And there was a little bit of moonlight. So it was very of the season. Uh, but yeah, I've done a corn maze now. I can say that. Woohoo. Was it good enough you, you would do another one? You were like, meh, I've punched it on my card. Corn maze. I get it. Done. It was interesting. I didn't love the idea of solving it. I was more following people who were more invested in it. Sure. These things are hard. You have no oh, yeah. clue where you oh, are. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's wild. So without a map, yeah doomed but um it was a a fun experience glad we did it if i never do one again i'm good i'm good i mean not only
1: delightful for the season but it sounds like you were doing some training of trying to bring together some good people for a positive outcome
2: training for this week's episode I love your spin on this. Uh, exactly. <laughs> it's a I,
1: bit of a reach, but I'm trying. We, di-
2: I, we went to this thing with the idea that looming large was this last episode of season four where we're talking about we are the world. And uh, yeah, you're 100% correct. How'd you do it? Look at you. Just <laughs> making those connections, connecting all the dots. We should probably find out what the day has in store for us here. Absolutely, Ben. Before we start working too much on our two-part harmonies, we should find out what's going on at lunch today and after school. Let's take a listen.
3: Attention, 80s High. I'm Suzanne, here to share today's homeroom announcements. Don't forget to follow 80s High podcast on Instagram or I'll steal your raspberry beret. On the lunch menu today, we've got a slice of Mystic Pizza, an Orange Julius from the food court, and a side of hot lunch jam. If you're loving 80s High, consider supporting the show by dropping a radical review, telling a classmate to tune in, or even shipping in a few dollars at coffee.com. It sounds like the coffee you drink, but it's spelled K-O-F-I, and it's caffeine-free, like Pepsi-free. After school today, the Breakfast Club will be meeting to discuss the recent raid of Barry Manilow's wardrobe by Vice Principal Vernon. Also, the Save Ferris Society will meet in the gym to practice their homecoming parade routine. Go Fighting Mogwais! Unfortunately, this week's meeting of the Jane Fonda Workout Club has been suspended after a run-in with the Junior Footloose Association. These have been your morning announcements. Remember, we are the world. We are the children. We are the senior class of 80s high. Thank you and have a totally tubular day.
1: Just like you in the field, our, I think our audience is all ears to hear about this week's oh, topic. Boy. <laughs> oh,
2: boy. Oh, jeez. And that's the end of the show, everybody. <laughs>
1: so I, I've got this mysterious invitation in a pre recorded cassette I've been practicing. We're supposed to meet in history class in one minute. Do you think we should head on down to history and see what this is all going to be about?
2: I'm intrigued. Uh, There's nothing like a a nice little uh, hint system and secrecy to to (laughs) rouse the old interest. So I say we head on down the hall and find out what is afoot. I'll meet Boo there.
1: No, the Halloween puns. Here's the thing. Here's the oh, problem. Buckle the, up, everybody. This is a rough ride. Here, here's, here's the thing. Here's the problem with all my. I gotta. I gotta change course because. Oh, I know the
2: problems. We all know the problems. What's that? Wait, <laughs> right, I mean, this episode's coming out in
1: December, and but right. I'm, we're in the middle of the Halloween season, which is like one of my
2: favorite seasons of the year. This is some people's Christmas. Is all I'm going to say. Sorry right. For some people, I'll, no. you know, this is the the highlight of the year. I am doing, here's the thing though. I am
0: doing
1: oh. the gremlins thing. Like is, is this a Halloween oh, yeah. podcast you're or is right. it a Christmas podcast? Could be both.
2: You're right. I am barefoot crawling around on glass and, and some ducks right now. So
1: that feels like <laughs> oh, yeah, Christmas you're, to
0: you're me.
1: Right. It's good. <laughs> <laughs> We're recording this from broken glass in Nakatomi uh, Plaza.
2: Exactly. The, the things we do for you folks.
1: As you alluded, we are doing We Are The World. You're always great at these elevator pitches. Can you give a 10,000 cargo jet drop view
2: of what We Are The World was? I will try. I mean, if you're from the 80s and maybe even after, you know, but uh, We Are The World was a charity single. It was recorded by a super group of music artists, USA for Africa, in 1985. Now the tune is written primarily by Michael Jackson and Lionel Richie. It's produced by Quincy Jones and Michael O'Martian? O'Martian? Mm. O'Martian? Is it O'Martian? I want it to be O'Martian. Our O'Martian sounds cooler. It sounds amazing. Um, and it was released as part of an album, We Are The World. So we're talking about the single, but it is a part of an album that has some other tunes on it as well. And this you know, brought together probably I think it was almost fifty performers. Let's say if you've seen the music video and you scan the crowd, you're like, "There's a couple people there that ain't music performers, but they're they're on the stands in the choir singing along, looking at you, Danny boy." But uh, yeah, yeah, uh, I'm sure we're gonna talk all about some of the Where's Waldo faces we found in the crowds. God, I just love that picture. That's gonna be on Instagram so much this month. <laughs>
1: Now, gang, we need you to strap in. You know, here at 80s High for freshman through senior year, we've always highlighted really positive, fun things because that is the true spirit of 80s High. But as we start to get into how We Are The World came to be, for the next maybe six minutes at the most, we're going to have to get into kind of a pretty bummer situation. If you don't want to hear about that, not a big deal. Skip roughly five to six minutes and you'll get over it. But all this starts with a pretty downer. Uh, But we're going to explain where this all begins.
2: You don't have a charity organization typically without some suffering, uh, unfortunately, you know, that brings people together. And uh, to be perfectly honest with you, I think even people who grew up in the 80s, and I'll include myself in that category, don't actually remember 100% what was going on at the time. I was a kid when this was happening. So as a kid, I knew this music video, I knew this song, but I didn't really fully understand the context. So I think some of this history is crucial.
1: Yeah, no, that's fair. It's a fair point. So here we go. And give us a little bit of grace. This is a little complicated about how all this stuff started. There's gonna be a lot of words. I've never heard out loud before that I'm gonna butcher, but we're gonna give our best shot
2: at some of this
1: Indeed. stuff. Indeed. So this all sort of started in the early to mid 80s. Uh, there were record low rainfalls throughout Ethiopia, and as mm-hmm. the country became drier and drier and drier, you had massive crop dry off. And of course, like we all know, the food chain: no crops, herbivores can't eat anything, carnivores can't eat anything. Really, really, really terrible. And this led to a a massive, widespread famine throughout Ethiopia. From that, its major effect hit from eighty three to eighty five. Mm. This was the first famine in a century. It affected nearly 8 million people. At the time, Ethiopia's population was about 40 million people. So it displaced 2.5 million people. So the government mm. and, and just on their own accord, people just got up and moved to try and find food and water. Uh, over a million people died in this. And there were about 400,000 refugees who left Ethiopia to, to try and survive. The most unfortunate part of this is at the same time, there was a dictator in power in Ethiopia mm. uh, that was Mengistu Hali Mariam. His regime was called the Derg back in the day. He was largely funded and backed by the Soviets in Cuba. And there were several insurgencies in the country that were trying to unseat him from power. That's the Oromo Liberation Front or the, and the Tigray People's Liberation Front. And this was going on at the same time of this famine and this drought And instead of dedicating a huge amount of resources to try and save the citizens of Ethiopia, he announced that he would put 46 percent of Ethiopia's gross national product just to build the largest standing army in sub-Saharan Africa to fight back against these rebels that were trying to unseat him. Wow! All that money that could have gone to water and food and safely housing all these people that were being displaced by the famine and the drought uh, he used for weapons and armor and 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 taking care of the army actually the country's federal health budget fell from 6% of its gross national product from 1974 all the way down to just 3% by 1991 mm. i could get into more details but i think that's the high level of like what was going on and really at the time you know you, ca- you talked about this you know kids in the 80s and even people who were alive in then didn't really know the full story at the time, the sort of PR move that Ethiopia was spinning is that it really was just the famine and the, and the drought, and, and there was nothing else as the problem. And, and, and years later, in, in retrospect, it really came out that this this terrible mismanagement of funding, certainly the famine and the drought started it, but being a war hawk versus there for your citizens is what really caused the largest amount of suffering amongst the people.
2: right. So
1: on October 23rd, 1984, which crazily from when we're recording this is almost exactly 39 years ago. Yeah. A BBC news crew who was headed by Michael Burke was the first to go into Ethiopia and document what was going on for the world. And to quote, he said it was a biblical famine in the 20th century and quote, the closest thing to H-E-double hockey sticks on earth. Mm. Uh, And so immediately, you know, a lot of groups, charity groups started donating to Ethiopia for relief for these efforts going on. But you start to see the seeds of some musical initiatives, and I want to hedge my bets here. I can't find the exact dates, but there's some other music things that happen at this time that people play music together to try and raise money to send over to Ethiopia. So in France, there's a, a French supergroup, the Chantour Says Frontières, releases mm-hmm. a song SOS Ethiopia uh, or Ethiopia, which sold a million copies, raised ten million francs. And then in Canada, you get a supergroup Northern Lights, which is a, a, a mashup of the Guess Who, Rush, and Murray John Candy of all people, and Neil <laughs> Young, and they sing "Tears Are Not Enough" to do the same sort of fundraising. But that's not the first, really, biggest musical response. What was that?
0: Yeah,
2: I think the big one that really kicks everything off is "Do They Know It's Christmas." This is in the UK, uh, 1984. And it's by a a group called Band-Aid. This is another super group that is assembled by Bob Geldof and Midge Ur. And this was to raise money for the famine that was going on in Ethiopia. They create this charity song, Do They Know It's Christmas? And this was a group that consisted of very popular British and Irish musical acts at that time. This group is awesome. Yeah, so you've got Sting. Phil Collins, Boy George, George Michael, Bono, without any glasses on. <laughs>
1: what is happening?
2: You have the members of Duran Duran. Uh, anyone else in there that you caught that I missed? You got all the big ones. The only other ones I'd mentioned that I just thought were
1: fun were Bananarama and Cool and the Gang We're also yeah. there. I, I love those groups that they were there too.
2: So it's a pretty big group. It's not nearly the size of what gets assembled next year when we get to the We Are the World group. Uh, but this is Band-Aid, and their song is, again, Do They Know It's Christmas, and this one was uh, a huge success. Do you have how much money they raised from that one, Ben? Yeah, it raised 8 million pounds, and just in the first week,
1: 28 wow. million total. And here's what's nuts. It became the fastest-selling single in UK chart history. And again, this was November 84, and it held that spot until 1997 wh- wow. uh, because of Elton John's Candle in the Wind is what Unseen. Oh, it. okay, yeah. I never realized it was so popular. Holy cow.
2: Yeah, so this event is what then spurs the idea that, hey, we should do something like this in the United States. Yeah. And what this, I think, really does is strike the interest of Harry Belafonte, who's an American entertainer. He's a singer. He does uh, a lot of stuff. Uh, he's a man of many facets. You might have maybe I mean for me his most recognizable song would be is "Deo" like "Deo Deo"
0: like yeah, the most 100% common one,
2: right? Like we all know that. Yeah. And if you know "Deo" not as its own song, you probably know it as one of the best scenes out of Beetlejuice. Oh my so. gosh,
0: yeah, also <laughs> Halloween. Sorry,
2: we're supposed to be talking about Christmas. Ah. I know, I know. I think to Tim Burton, Halloween and Christmas are identical. Like, well, Batman too. Sure, Batman 2 Nightmare Before Christmas. It's yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, we we, we yeah. brought it back. Okay, we're safe. Cool. Okay, yeah, we made it. Okay, we're making all the connections, everybody. <laughs> so, Harry Belafonte had this idea like, hey, we could organize a group of our generation's best known music artists to record a song. And he said that, you know, the proceeds donated to this new organization, the United Support of Artists for Africa, USA mm. for Africa. Mm hmm. And this would be a nonprofit foundation providing food and relief aid to the folks who are starving in Africa, very specifically at this time in Ethiopia, uh, again, as this famine continues to uh, just really become this widespread catastrophe and Ben, what what kind of happens next after this this seedling of an idea? starts to sprout
1: totally no this is great and guys this is going to become like the justice league the avengers of the music (laughs) industry and we're going to try and not bore you with an alphabet soup of names but like everyone who is anyone in music almost everybody (coughs) prince (coughs) gets involved Um, yeah. So Belafonte's stoked, and he calls his entertainment manager Ken Cragen, tells him all about the idea, and Cragen's like, "This is amazing." So Cragen calls his other clients, Lionel Richie and Kenny Rogers, who are like, "Duh, we're totally in." Mm-hmm. They in turn get in touch with Stevie Wonder, and Stevie's like, "I am super down for this project, of course, of course." Mm-hmm. So they get Quincy Jones to co-produce the song. Who takes he at the time he was working on the film uh, The Color Purple. He takes a break. Oh right. And Jones works a lot with Michael Jackson. And that's like, come on, we've talked about this a thousand times in 80s high. That's the name in the 80s. So Jones calls Michael Jackson and (laughs) Michael Jackson calls Lionel Richie. And he's like, not only do I want to sing this song, I want to help you write it. Yeah. He's like, come to my house. (laughs) And And so Lionel, I would, God, to be a fly on the wall in this house would have
2: been totally nuts. So this is just Richie and Jackson,
0: right? Just Richie and Jackson. These
2: two basically sitting on a couch, walking around, you know, Jackson's – maybe he doesn't have his compound yet. I don't think he has the Neverland Ranch yet, but whatever, right? Like walking around this guy's house and they're just doing this like – Jam session of figuring out what's this song going to be like. Yeah. Amazing.
1: It's beautiful. Yeah. So they meet up in Encino, California at Havenhurst, which was the Jackson family home. Uh And exactly what you talked about. But, you know, there's an interview down the road with his sister Latoya, who was like, you know, quote, I'd go into the room while they were writing and it would be very quiet, which is odd since Michael's usually very cheery when he works. It was very emotional for them. Mm-hmm. And Richie said later, he said, quote, you know, we didn't want a normal sounding song. We wanted Bombastic, the biggest thing you got. He said that, you know, I found this cool. They listened to a bunch of national anthems from around the world. Oh, To try and like get inspired for the vibe and the sound of it. Sure. Quote, we put all that into a pot in our heads and came up with a rhythm that sounded familiar like a world anthem. We wanted people to feel like it was a familiar song. Once we got that. Show business, man. (laughs) I I love that quote from Lionel
2: Richie. Show business, man. (laughs) (laughs) I will say it does, you know, not to get to chemistry too quickly, but I will say that it does, it is one of those songs that you feel like you've always known it when you first hear it. And that's always an interesting feeling when you hear a song for the first time. You're like, wait, I've heard this before. Yeah. But you haven't. Yeah. And so once they had like written everything, they worked crazy fast.
1: So... In just two and a half hours on the night of January 21st, 1985, Jackson and Lionel Richie completed the lyrics and the melody of the whole song, Mm. which is just freaking bonkers. Yeah. We've gotten the idea for it. We've written it. Let's talk about making it. Let's talk about recording the song. I promise you listeners that Chris and I are not going to give you a minute by minute play But there's honestly a really engaging minute by minute play. There's an article uh, from Esquire written by Ryan D'Agostino from June 2020 called We Are the World Inside Pop Music's Most Famous All-Nighter. And Mm. he goes like literally like every 60 seconds of the whole night of how the recording went down, which is actually really engaging. It's cool. But we're not going to do that here. You go there. We do this thing here. That's right. Super tight security on the first night. That's January 22nd, 1985. For those of you playing along at home, that's the next night. Like, Ritchie and Jackson lay it, it down, and they're like, all right, into the recording studio. So Ritchie, Jackson, Stevie Wonder, and Quincy Jones are all there at Kenny Rogers' Lion Share recording studio. They record some backing tracks, and Lionel and Jackson record the vocal guide. Mm. And what they're doing is they're recording sort of like a training cassette. Right to mail out to everyone they're going to invite. So on January 24th, again, this is just like three days after they first write all this stuff, they ship these cassettes all around the country with this really, this gives me chills to read this. So Quincy Jones writes this letter that's in the package with every cassette. Quote, my fellow artists, the cassettes are numbered and I can't express how important it is not to let this material out of your hands. Please do not make copies and return this cassette the night of the 28th. In the years to come, when your children ask, what did mommy and daddy do for the war against world famine, you can say proudly, this was
2: your contribution. Mm. I love that. Well said, Quincy. So now we get to the
1: big night. This is the big night, January 28th, 1985. And Ben,
2: just to set the kind of stage here, right? Yeah, please. This is not like we're going to make this big announcement. Top music acts get together to record charity single to end famine in Africa, right. right? No, no. There's not a huge billboard no. all over. It's not Peter Jennings reporting on the news. <laughs> this was, as we mentioned earlier, kind of alluded to super freaking secret that this was happening. Super duper. Yeah, absolutely. And the big issue was if like the press get hold of this and people show up, paparazzi are there, fans are there screaming. Like these artists are not going to want to come in and record. They're not going to run this gauntlet. So they kind of pull a heist of sorts, I think. Oh my God, that's a great way to put it. really smart the way they do this, because how do you also get this many people together and not make it super freaking obvious? Yeah. Uh, So we're going to get into it, but I just think that's an important setting going into this. It's top secret. Absolutely.
1: And how they got all these people here. So the location they choose to record this at is the A&M Recording Studios in Hollywood. And that was really strategic because that same night in LA were the American Music Awards, the ceremony. So everybody had flown in from all over to be there. And so this idea of like, oh, we'll just catch him after the show. But so I can't imagine everyone sitting there giddy with this secret
0: in in
1: the AMA ceremony,
2: knowing where they were going afterwards, but they couldn't say anything. And you have to imagine Madonna's like, Hey, I wanna celebrate with somebody. Hey, where are you guys going? Where's like, everybody oh, going? Oh, um Sorry, Dionne Wara can't join you. She has to go to the bathroom. Like, hey, Lionel, what are you doing? Like, oh, Stevie and I are going to grab a burger somewhere. <laughs> like, all of these <laughs> artists <laughs> are, like, peeling off, and Madonna's like, what's going on? Where is everybody? I'm fun. <laughs> Doesn't mean
1: no girls just want to have fun.
2: Come on. Pat Benatar comes over, and she's like, I'll hang out with you. Yeah,
1: they shimmy-shake off to a bar That's together. Right. <laughs> So at the end of the day, 45 of America's top musicians participated in this recording, and they had to turn away another 50. They just couldn't get everybody in. Jackson gets there first.
2: Can I ask you, did you see who's on that rejection list? I am so curious who wanted to come and wasn't available but i couldn't find that information did you have anything on that no i've got i've got one person we're going to talk about and a couple we sure i've got two
1: people we'll talk about
2: yeah yeah yeah. okay yeah all right i was i was kind of curious i want to see like who was like on this rejection list where they're like you can't show up dan Aykroyd has a slot oh my
1: god what (laughs) i oh my god he's really the weird standout of this So so Jackson, Uh, jackson gets there first Records his own solos. He does his part of the chorus. And this room already is full of session musicians and technicians and videographers. There's so many people there. Yeah. But then like, do you want to, let's, let's get into it. Like, I'm like, the hairs are literally standing up on my forearms. Who starts coming into the studio?
2: All right. So just a few people who show up in this, you have, well, obviously the people we've mentioned already, so we don't need to rename them, but we also have Paul Simon. Mm Mm-hmm. Tina Turner. Yeah. Billy Joel. Oh, yeah. Willie Nelson. Amazing. Diana Ross. Yeah. Bruce Springsteen. The boss. Kenny Loggins. Huey Lewis. Cindy Lauper. Kim Carnes. Bob Dylan. Ray Charles.
1: (laughs) What a legend.
2: Hall and Oates are there. I think all the Jackson siblings are there. Yeah, yeah. And Waylon Jennings, Bette Midler, it's like Pointer Sisters. Smokey Robinson, yes. I could keep going. Like, it is stacked with some of the, not all of them, but some of the biggest standout 80s acts that we all just associate with this decade. It is wild. The one, I tried to dig in this.
1: Did you find the details? The one name you said that just stuck out there like a sore thumb? One of these mm. things is not like the other. Dan Aykroyd. Dan Aykroyd. What is Dan Aykroyd doing
2: there? What I have learned from all of these, and we'll talk about another one in contemporary culture, is you have to have one random actor, right? John Candy was in that Canadian one, right? The Northern Lights. They're like, well, we got to get John Candy. How is it Dan Aykroyd? How did he win the lottery? Uh, He's not a singer, as far as I know. You love Dan. You're a big fan. Got to meet him in person. I did. It was very exciting. I don't know how he got there. It sounds like you couldn't figure out why he's there either. And the funny thing is, is... He looks a little mm, disinterested. Is that the best word? Yeah. I mean, he just doesn't have, weirdly enough, he just
1: doesn't have, like, the stage presence of the singers. Like, he's just not used to up there, I guess, singing. It's But the it's
2: man's odd. an actor. Like, he doesn't look like he's having a great time. Which I'm like, you are in the company of greatness. Like, I would just be ear to ear grinning for that alone. I mean, yeah, these artists... We're in awe of each other, right? Oh, yeah. You don't show up and you're like, oh, it's Ray Charles. No big whoop. You're like, it's freaking Ray Charles, right? Yeah. Like, I think, who was it? Maybe it was Huey Lewis. He's like, "I love Bob Dylan. Bob Dylan was there." He's like, "I couldn't speak to the man. Like I just I couldn't do it. Like it was Right. They're right. getting each other's autographs. Again, I'm jumping ahead, but like that is the buzz in the room. And Dan is just kind of like, I'll be in the back bleachers. Just to be in his brain of like, how I wonder if he was asking, "Why am I here? How did I get here?" <laughs> Do you think he was like showing up for something else and he walked in the wrong <laughs> door and all of a sudden he's like, I guess I'm in this thing now. <laughs> he's like, this isn't Ghostbusters. I guess he is a blues brother. Maybe. I don't know. Oh. I, don't, I don't know what it is. <laughs> there, maybe. there it is. There it but, is. But you we ca- found you it. You captured
1: the vibe well. And this is famous. This is an origin of this phrase. On the door to the recording studio was this sign yeah. handwritten, please check your egos at the door, which sort mm-hmm. of like set the vibe for the night. And everybody was sort of on board with that. You kind of described it. It's very cheerful. People are amazed of like, whoa, Bruce Springsteen, you're here. And that's like Michael Jackson saying that. Like everyone's so shocked at each other. They're very excited. Absolutely. John Oates, famously of Hall and Oates, had a great quote of like the vibe as it started. And he says, quote, Ray Charles, being who he was, commanded a certain deference and respect from everyone, even though he didn't assert himself in a weird way. He was just standing in the middle, doing his part. Lionel, Michael, and Quincy were running the show. It was their song, their production, and everybody was respectful, trying to make it happen. Ray, every once in a while, would just pipe up, come on, hey, let's go, listen to Michael, let's get this thing done. He was there to sing, and he sensed that it could go south very quickly. He commanded a lot of respect, and I thought that was very cool. I also I also love Stevie Wonder makes this early joke. <laughs> He, he says basically, if we don't complete the recording in one take, he and Ray Charles are going to drive everybody home,
2: <laughs> which I thought was awesome. That was great.
1: <laughs> now there's two huge personalities who aren't in the room here that should be here. We're invited,
2: right? More like invited, they we're invited. We're invited. Yeah. yeah. Uh, do you want to talk about those two missing folks? Yeah, I know. I don't have a ton of the details. The one I know about, actually, I can't remember the second person, but the one is Prince. Uh, Prince was apparently invited and I think it planned to come, but for some reason didn't show up. It's really interesting if there was some kind of like, speaking of egos at the door, did he have a little beef with Michael or something? I don't know. I felt like there was a weird thing there, but didn't he say he wasn't feeling well? I can't remember. Like he, He or his publicist gave a reason, but it sounded like a little eh, okay, sure.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of myths and hearsay and scuttlebutt out there of why they didn't show. You're right, Prince and Michael weren't like weren't besties. He was spotted that night during the recording at a restaurant in L.A., Carlos and Charlie's. That's uh, right. Where unfortunately, two of his bodyguards got in a fist fight with photographers, oh. which maybe complicated matters. Fair enough. Prince did later record one track for the whole "We Are the World" album for the tears yeah. in your eyes, though. So he, he did try and make it up. Gosh, could you imagine this with Prince in it? It'd be so weird. I, I did see a quote that Huey Lewis thinks he that he got Prince's line. Oh, interesting. He
2: thinks that line was for Prince. I mean, Huey delivers it in such a Huey um, way. Like, imagining someone else's voice sing that part is really hard. Like, some of these, you hear that person, and that is, like, forever jammed in your brain. Uh, but, yeah, you do kind of wonder, like, what would this song have been? Who's the other person, though? I can't remember. Really we
1: more in the Dan Aykroyd camp is Eddie Murphy was invited. Oh, Right! Eddie Murphy. What what, what was he performing? He was (laughs) too busy (laughs) recording party all the time. Is why he said he couldn't make it. Uh, He said later, uh, quote, when I realized what it was for, I felt like an idiot.
2: Okay, Eddie, we had this quote, exact same quote from Eddie before. And I was racking my brain to remember. Where Eddie was like slated for something. Another thing, a property we talked about on this show. And Eddie turned it down and was later like, I was such a dumb-dumb. Like, why did oh, I do that? Uh, I think oh, was it, it Batman and Robin? Was he supposed to be Robin or something? I think you might be right. No, the first movie. I think it was the first one he was supposed to be Robin. Anyway, he turned it down and was later like, what a, a dingbat. But also, like, Robin was cut from the movie anyway.
1: Uh, he, he was offered Eddie Valiant in uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit.
2: Oh, is that what it is? Oh, yeah. Okay. Okay. At least it's one Shoot. of it. Okay.
1: Unfortunately, there's a whole article out there of major roles Eddie Murphy turned down, <laughs> 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 which is painful to scroll through right now. Oh, oh dude. Oh, Eddie.
2: Eddie. Well, you know what? You still had a great career, buddy, even though maybe you didn't get the roles you should have, but okay. As Roger would say, Eddie, please. Please, um, Eddie. Oh, okay, man. so we're
1: getting close. It's almost time to turn on the mics. So I mean, this is a more exclusive club than Studio 54. And mm. so it's it's interesting who gets invited and who doesn't. So there's a crew from Life magazine who was given exclusive rights to cover the recording from a media standpoint. So there's a journalist and, and their team there. There's also a documentary team there headed by Tommy Trovich, which like there's 50 people. So they're setting up additional mics and cameras. And actually, gang, it is really great to go out and watch the documentary. The documentary is pretty inspiring to watch. And that article I mentioned at the top of history, like that guy is basically just writing what you're watching in the documentary. You get to watch all this go down, but adding context.
2: And speaking of 80s-tastic people, it is hosted by Jane
1: Fonda. Oh, yeah, right. God, she was great. It was so good. But what's interesting is there was a really strict rule for the artists. None of their wives, boyfriends, managers, publicists, old bandmates, none of those people were allowed to join the artists. So you got the artists and the people there to work. That's it. Yep. So we get into it. Lionel Richie teaches everybody the song. Most people had not had a chance to listen to the cassette tapes yet. We've all got those friends. You know, hey, where are we meeting up this weekend? Didn't you read the text message? No, what text message? Oh, my God. I put so much time into that text. There were specific emojis. There was a funny gif in there. Come on, so he's got to teach everybody, which is great. It's pretty. It's a pretty simple melody, which is good though. So that's easy. Mm-hmm. So once everybody learns the song, the official recording is underway at ten thirty at night. And the first conflict that comes in is um, someone brings up the idea of singing some of the song in Swahili. And so, like, some yes. artists get upset about it. Some people leave I the room. I think it was Michael.
2: I think Michael wanted to do Swahili. Maybe, and, yeah. Uh, it's like in the chorus part. Right. I couldn't find out exactly why, but it's apparently there was a lot of protests to not include that. And I wasn't quite sure why. I guess they just felt it didn't fit.
1: Yeah, I don't know. It, it was a really a controversial thing. At the end of the day, you don't hear any Swahili in the song. And yeah. this, this happens several times of like lyric changes on the spot because you've got all these amazing recording artists. So there's this whole thing of brighter and better, saving ourselves. Yeah. The
2: original was, we're taking our own lives.
1: Yes, right. Yeah, exactly. And then
2: all of a sudden they were like, wait, that might read a little differently. And so it's, we're saving our own lives. So, I mean, there's definitely a little bit of that. Yeah. On the spot, this happens, right? You get in the recording studio and something just sounds better saying than maybe it did practiced, or, you know, you get a little bit of time or different voices in the room. I did also like that they intentionally did sing it in a first-person viewpoint so that audiences yeah. could internalize the message of when you're singing weed together. And so that yeah. was uh, very intentional to draw not only the various artists in who are recording it, but also you as the listener.
1: Yeah. There's many little vignettes that happen throughout the evening, and I don't want to get into all of them, but there were just a few that I wanted to pull out that I just thought were interesting of this, like side action that was happening with the recording Mm. one comes from daryl hall of hall and oats and he said he was in the bathroom and that michael jackson comes in the bathroom and that michael asks daryl while they're in the bathroom if daryl minded that he had ripped off no can do to make billy jean and daryl hall is like what wait no i had no idea that you ripped off no can do. I don't mind at all. You did a great job stealing it because I didn't notice is what he said. And he said like maybe the intro is a little similar, but like hmm. that's it. That's it. I just love that like Michael cornered somebody in the bathroom. And they're like, sorry, I stole your song. It was great. Right. <laughs> There's more drama around Jackson. Did you read this about his publicist, Norman Winter?
2: No. So what happened?
1: Norman Winter, Jackson's publicist. He he'd worked with Elton John, Bob Dylan. He's on the soundstage. He's in there. You know, I know there's this rule, you can't invite your crew, but it's Michael kind of running the show, so Michael can do what Michael wants. But Winter didn't like that he was on the soundstage. He wanted to actually be in the studio with the artists and, like, next to Quincy Jones, like, directing all this. As a publicist? Yeah, a lot of ego. Get the hell out of here, dude. Get yeah, out of here.
2: Get the hell out of here. You're nobody.
1: He keeps hounding Harriet Sternberg to let him in. He keeps lying and saying that Michael wants him in the studio. And then he starts going around and just kind of yelling at everybody that Michael Jackson had written the whole song by himself and that Lionel Richie, who was Harriet Sternberg's client, had nothing to do with the song. And so eventually, I love this Richie's manager, Sternberg. <laughs> tells security to kick jackson's publicist out and they
2: do (laughs) this is a terrible publicist by the way or maybe they're very good at their job i spent in some bs but i'm like really dude get the hell
0: out of here
1: gtfo winter i just love that i love that good riddance sir the last kind of like touching thing that happens you know before we finish recording this song is very early on and you know we talk about this this recording goes on all night but and the early hours stevie wonder had arranged for two women from ethiopia to come into the studio Yeah, and they both sort of like gave a very from the heart speech everybody stops you know mics are off uh, everybody stops recording everyone takes a seat or, or rests and you see this in the movie like a bunch of the famous musicians just start bawling yeah it's a very moving moment they've been working all night singing their hearts out Everyone's so down, but they do have to finish. So after they, they speak, you know, these were Stevie Wonder's guests. Stevie Wonder says, you know, I was just so glad that we got to come together for this recording session because it gave me a chance to see my fellow blind musician, Ray Charles. Uh, we just sort of bumped into each other here. I don't know. Wonder's great at kind of keeping the vibe there.
2: Trying to bring some levity back. I mean, yeah. it's, it's nice to be reminded of why you're there. Of course, everyone's right. on board with it, right? And, you know, I, I think... To do something like this, there's going to be a lot of camaraderie and fun and all that kind of stuff about what you're doing. But to have someone come in and and also just sort of like not reset the tone, but just remind you of why you're there, I think is, you know, is is critical. And ultimately, Stevie's the one to kind of be like, that said, let's all let's all get back into the groove so we can finish this thing off because they're there really into the next morning.
1: It's nuts. Yeah. The last solo that gets recorded is Springsteen solo. Which means they are officially done recording at eight AM the next day. Wow. Speaking of Lennon Richie,
2: all night long they are recording. Well, you know, as they say, the boss is the last one to leave. And That's so true. Springsteen. That's true.
1: <laughs> I think it's really cute because Kenny Rogers like takes the sheet music he's been reading from and he starts running around with a pen to get everyone to sign it. And everyone's yeah. like, that's a great idea. So they start getting everyone to sign each other's sheet music. And yeah. I, you know, I won't go into the details, but there's a lot of warm memories that people have of like, they got all these sheet musics framed and it's all hung in these famous artists' houses, which is kind of cool. It's
2: like the last week of high school when you're running around right. to get everyone to sign your yearbook. Right. So Ben, this whole thing comes together. I imagine it's released and it's an instant hit and everybody loves it. And it's amazing and a big success. And there's no critics, right? Uh,
1: we would usually, we would usually say that, uh, and largely (laughs) you're, you're kind of right. I mean, it is a bell curve. I mean, critics are all over the board because it's weird. I mean, let me back up just a hot minute. It comes out pretty quickly about six weeks later. So March 7th, 1985. And I do love, I do love the release. This is awesome. Is it's like a worldwide drop at the same time on the radio, which is really cool. Mm. So it was the idea of uh, these Georgia radio disc jockeys, Bob Wolf and Don Brisker. And they called hundreds of radio and satellite stations all around the world. So on the morning of April 5th, 1985, a month later after the single was released, it was a good Friday of that year, 3.50 p.m. GMT, over 8,000 radio stations at the same time play the song, which I just thought was really cool. That's the global release, which is great. That's awesome. No, but you're right. Like, it's a bell curve, and it's hard because you're trying to please so many different genres. Like, at its heart, the song is doing the right thing. But you've got, like, Willie Nelson's crowd. Is this going to go for Willie Nelson's crowd? You've got Michael Jackson's crowd. Are they all about this? You've got punk rocker Cyndi Lauper in there. Like, how do people who love Cyndi Lauper feel about this? It's hard because it's, like, genre-spanning, and it's done by the king of pop, Michael. Like, he is a god, but, like, I don't know. It's It's kind of all over.
2: Yeah, I I think mixed reviews, particularly from critics, I think it's pretty fair to say because, you know, there were people who praised it for everything that, you know, you would praise something like this for. And then, of course, on the flip side of that, you can look at it very cynically and think that this is opportunistic or that it's self indulgent. And, uh, there was one critic in particular who had some uh, some very scathing words oh, for this particular single. Do you have the quote? I mean, I don't have the quote, but basically the, the gist was that it sounded like a jingle for Pepsi. Yeah, yeah. Which this critic said was neither intentional nor serendipitous. So they didn't think it was like a full-out endorsement, but I think like, what was it, Charles and Michael Jackson, I think one other artist at least, had promoted Pepsi before. Yeah, they were contracted with Pepsi, yeah. Contracted, yeah, that's the word. What was the tagline of Pepsi that was really close to "We Are the Choice of a New Generation"? Is that what it was?
1: Right, right. Because there's a line in "We Are the World" that's like we have a choice. There's
2: a choice we're a, making. A yeah, that's what we're it was. Making, right. Thank you, thank you for connecting that. Yeah, you know, others felt it was self indulgent that musicians were singing about it an experience they never had, and that then they could then pat themselves on the back for doing a good job. So I think that was some of the the criticisms, and um, we'll certainly hear this again. It's not the first and yeah. last time. Yeah, yeah. But on the flip side, the positives were that, like, hey, you know, you mentioned all of these artists from different genres, different voices, yeah, yeah, very yeah. unique voices. And like these were all artfully interwoven. All of these vocals yeah. meshed well. There's a lot of good duets and kind of handoff or two-parters or harmonies that are in there. We can talk about some of those probably in chemistry. And that each artist lent their own style and expression to the song, but it still like cohered. It still felt like the same song. And so those were like the big positives from it. And certainly I think, you know, we can talk about its impact in terms of, you know, what it was able to raise for um, famine relief. But uh, yeah, at least the song as it is, that's kind of what I saw about the reception of it.
1: Yeah, I mean, and on top of the reception, so it it hit number one on the R&B singles chart, Hot Adult Contemporary Tracks chart, the Billboard Hot 100, where it stayed for a month. It became the first single uh, since Let It Be by the Beatles to get into the top five within two weeks of release on Billboard. Okay. So that's pretty cool. All right. Outside of the US, the single reached number one in Australia, France, Ireland, New Zealand, the Netherlands, Norway, Sweden, Switzerland, and the UK. Peaked at number two in Germany and Austria. Okay. The thing, though, that's interesting, you talked about how it was, you know, I I mentioned how it's different genres. It's genre spanning. It only got to number 27 on the rock tracks for Billboard Mm. and only 76 on country singles. Mm. I mean, it's not a country song by any stretch of the means.
2: No, it's like you don't have Dolly Parton in here. You don't have, I think, I mean, you have Waylon Jennings. I don't know that you have. And Willie Willie Nelson, Nelson, I guess, of course. Yeah, I mean, you do have Willie, duh. But um, yeah, I mean... You don't have a massive country presence. I think it definitely is more in the kind of pop rock zone. But, you know, it's pulling in folks from other areas. So I I could see that. Absolutely. It became the first single to be certified multi-platinum,
1: four-time certification. Five years later, by the end of the 80s... It was noted that it was the biggest single of the 80s and in history. I don't know if this still stands up. I don't know when this article was written compared to like Taylor Swift and stuff. But We (laughs) Are The World was cited as the best selling single in U.S. and pop music history. Okay. Which is incredible. But that night was not the last time this gang or parts of this gang got together and sang the song, was it?
2: No, it's not. Well, um, I don't know if it was performed here, but we should say that it did win oh, yeah. four awards at the 1986 Grammys. Thank you. Yeah. It got record of the year, song of the year, best pop performance by a duo or group with vocal, and <laughs> that's a very specific category. Very specific And best music video, comma, short form. So (laughs) yeah, it cleaned up some big categories at the Grammys. Also that year at the American Music Awards, it was named Song of the Year. They honored organizer Harry Belafonte with an award of appreciation. Yeah. And Belafonte thanked Ken Kragan, Quincy Jones, and he said the two artists who without their Great Gift would not have inspired us in quite the same way as we were inspired. Mr. Lionel Richie and Michael Jackson. And then following that speech, apparently they reunite a healthy chunk of those original performers, uh, the USA for Africa crew on stage. And as the closing ceremony, they sing We Are the World Together. I didn't That's get to see nice. this performance. Did you see this one, Ben? Yes, and here's the thing.
1: I I actually really enjoyed watching this performance, and my favorite part of watching it is in the audience is Paul McCartney with his arms around a bunch of friends, like swaying and singing along uh, oh, as awesome. they sing, which I thought was really, really
2: freaking cool. No, it's it's kind of fun to watch it. Amazing. Yeah, so that's what I have. I mean, I'm sure there were tons of other performances, but I think that was a big standout because of the recognition it got at the Music Awards. And, you know, also following a nabbing all those Grammys. Certainly beyond
1: the 80s. I mean, even in the 80s, this inspired so many people to action and to do things in their own communities on a global scale. Yeah. And beyond, as we'll get to much later, it inspired a
2: lot of things after the 80s. But were there any other sort of spinoffs of this that occurred? Yeah. So what's really wild is pretty quickly, there are tons of spinoffs. And these are things that you're probably going to recognize and know that still go on today. So, We Are the World gained further promotion and coverage in May of 1986. It was played during a major benefit held throughout the United States, hands across America. Oh, yeah, right, right, right. This was kind of a follow-up project that USA for Africa did. And this was an event in which millions of people formed a human chain across the U.S. Then as a two-year-old, were you a part of the chain? <laughs> Did your parents tell the story about how you helped form a hand across America with your tiny little wings spread as a my two-year-old? Little
1: tiny pink hands. No, I've actually never heard my family mentioned
2: uh, hands across America. Were you in the chain? Were you a link? I heard about this, but I don't remember it being a thing, like a huge thing at the time. Maybe it didn't make its way to Ohio. I don't know. But <laughs> maybe it, uh, it swung down a little south of us. Who knows? But- I mean, I certainly remember people talking about it, but I don't remember it being quite as big of a phenomenon as it was for We Are the World, of course. Because it was was on everyone's TV sets. We were all watching MTV, of course. But yeah, that event was uh, held to draw attention to hunger and homelessness in the United States. So really, again, writing off of the success of We Are the World, Hands Across America, let's also bring some relief to those suffering here at home. Yeah. Just a, a quick interesting note, Michael Jackson apparently wanted this song to be the official theme for the event, but other board members outvoted oh, him. Oh, right. And so they decided on a new song to be created and released called Hands Across America. I listened to the song. It is not super duper catchy. <laughs> um, no one else also agreed with that. It didn't achieve the level of success that we all the world did. And so they then decide that, okay, you know... We are going to use We Are the World as the official theme for the event. And then Jackson was like, I'm out. I'm off the board of directors for USA for Africa. You didn't listen to me. You'd right? around and found Holy out. Cow. I'm gone. Oh wow. So that was wild. That was wild. A literal mic drop. A literal mic drop. Crazy. Then also there's uh, this is crazy. So all of these artists that either participated or were inspired by it, were influenced to create these other benefits. This is where we get live aid, comic relief, farm aid. These are all things that continue to this day. And they all quickly came out in the mid 80s, late 80s, as a direct response to the success of We Are The World. So a huge impact right there in terms of like, let's capitalize on either comedy or music to change the world to make things better for those who are um, suffering. So yeah, very cool. Yeah, very, very cool. As you mentioned, we're going to talk about some more, uh, certainly in uh, contemporary culture as well. Absolutely. Ben, this is certainly the time where we would be preparing to go to chemistry class. Uh, Do we need to go to music appreciation? Is this another one where (laughs) we break with the the typical pattern and we go across the hallway to music appreciation? Or are we just going to... Head down to chemistry and talk about the science. What happens when you combine all of these musical molecules together in the air? What do we get? What is our experience with it? Maybe it's the same class. I did hear that there actually is a leak. There's a pipe burst in music appreciation.
1: So that whole class is coming into chemistry. They're next to each other. So we're just going to mix it all together (laughs) down there. It'll be
2: perfect. We're going to breathe in the gas. It's going to be great. It's going to be great. (laughs) This will be fine. This will be fine. We'll be fine. I'm a little lightheaded. It's a weird smell in here. Is it rotten eggs? Is it rotten eggs? Are we going to make it? Oh,
1: my gosh. I need my My Girl inhaler. I'm a little tight (laughs) in the
2: chest. (laughs) (laughs) It's the 80s. I don't think EpiPens were invented yet. We're in big trouble. That's true.
1: It was back then where they just said, brush it off. You'll be fine as you go into anaphylactic shock. That's right. Builds character, Ben. We're here in music chemistry theory. Uh, appreciation (laughs) to talk about uh, We Are the World. Chris, you know, as as you mentioned, I was just a wee, wee, wee lad when this came out. So admittedly, I had no cognizance of this as a kid. I I didn't know. This was fun learning this. I never knew the story behind Do They Know It's Christmas? I feel like I've heard that every Christmas since I was a little kid. But I never knew what caused that song to be made or that who all was in it. Right. Learning about We Are The World, I feel like all I heard, like, in the 90s, it was part of a stand-up bit. Or maybe on SNL that somebody was, like, reading through the chorus very quickly. Oh, okay. That's all I knew. But at the time of this, you towered a good seven feet above me at that time. You were a man of the world. You were out doing things. Do you have any memories of We Are The World early on?
2: Yeah, I was fully grown in 1985. I was, uh, (laughs) I I had a big moment. Uh, Tom Hanks, you know, just kind of... I was like, Josh, I shot up overnight. You were like one of those foam pills you like throw in the bathtub and it like cracks open and you're like a fully formed person. Yeah.
1: Exactly.
2: Exactly. No. So I would have been 1985. Gosh, I would have been six years old. So a kid, but I definitely remember this being such a huge deal. And as a household that had MTV on fairly regularly, nice. it was cool to see all of these music artists that I knew all sing together. It was like I I understood even at that young age that this was a big deal, that that was significant to have all these people together. Of course, Michael Jackson. We were a big Huey Lewis in the news household oh, because my mom awesome. loved crushed hardcore on yeah. Huey. <laughs> She loved Huey so much. Good for her. But yeah, again, remember is a big deal. Uh, Remember watching on MTV. I I remember the music video more than just hearing the song on its own. Yeah. Um, So really my association is with seeing everybody there singing together. And again, it was just such a cool thing to see all these people from different music videos on the same stage singing together. Right. That's kind of my early memories of it. And, uh, you know, it's a very catchy song, of course. So it's one of those that that sticks with you. And um, it was very fun to revisit it because, goodness gracious, I can't tell you the last time I heard this song. Yeah. Certainly watched the video. Probably in the 90s at the most recent. Right. I would, imagine. right. Yeah, I would say about the same for me. Yeah. Should we talk a little bit about the music video and, like, what we like about it? I wanna talk both about the music
1: video, I wanna talk about the song itself, I wanna talk yes. about the making of documentary. Yes. I mean a couple just a couple tee ups. You know, I know you and I were pretty stoked a few months ago for when we did Hero Quest and the Bards the best thing about Hero Quest had three point two million views. Yes. But We Are The World has 140 million views on
2: YouTube. Couple more. <laughs> Just a few more. The Bard's not quite there. He's making his way, slowly I'm, but surely. He's get, he'll get there one day. He'll get there.
1: He is the best thing about YouTube. But I, I'm not going to read the whole, all the lyrics, because that's, that's nuts. Go listen to yourself. Go read it. There are basically four verses. But the chorus that's sung many, 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 many times is we are the world, we are the children, we are the ones who make a brighter day, so let's start giving. It's almost like my Gremlins watch notes or Golden Girls not. I just have like running watch notes from watching everything. Okay. It's all over the place. But I mean, is there anything that jumped out to you initially when this music video kicked off?
2: You start with just this, like, killer progression. Not that there's, like, a bad apple in the bunch. There's certainly artists I did not recognize and had to look up. Yeah, sure. There's so many people in here. There's somewhere I'm like, I don't know who that person is. But, you know, we kick off with Lionel. It's Lionel Richie right there. Yeah. And then you pop on over to Stevie Wonder. Oh, my God.
1: Stevie's so
2: good in this song. He's so good. Yeah. And then you get a kind of a... Well, it's a handoff, and then I think they do a harmony with Paul Simon and Kenny Rogers. Yes, I believe yes, th- those are the is. ones who are next. Was Stevie a part of that one as well? Like people kind of fade in and out. Right, and I, I don't, right. I it's kind of hard do a to play keep by track. play, so yeah, I can't yeah, quite yeah. remember. This is going to kick off harmonies that sounded really good together. That it. I would not say you're surprising, but you are unexpected. Totally. Kenny Rogers and Paul Simon. <laughs> I think unexpected is a great way
1: to talk about this music video because there's just like these moments of unexpected joy. Because like yeah. when you hear a musician's voice anytime, like any any kind of music, you're like, all right, I'm settling in. I'm gonna listen to a record by Cindy Lauper. And then suddenly, like, if Bruce Springsteen starts singing after Cindy Lauper, you're like, whoa, wait, what is the boss doing here? Yeah. I, it's like seven minutes of that, where it's just like these amazing voices jump in when you don't expect
2: them. And they all sound so freaking good. It's awesome. It's so great. And then you come to James Ingram, which when I heard him, I was like, okay, that's like a total rocker voice. Yeah. I love it. He's the only person that I feel like has like a, not hair metal voice, but like a classic rock is that maybe what sure. it is yeah Which, yeah listen yeah, i understand yeah. there's other rock stars in here so people are going to be like yo yo calm your calm <laughs> your words here buddy <laughs> choose them wisely but this was a guy that i had i did not recognize at all i'm like who's this dude but the voice was so familiar yeah it was driving me crazy and i had to look it up and i'm like this is a dude from journey oh yeah right come on this is the lead singer don't stop believing right how we touch it with our separate ways. Like, I love that song. It's and a great when I finally song. put two and two together, I'm like, this is
0: the guy. Yeah.
2: Hello, classmates. Future Chris here with an editor's note. And uh, buckle up. This is going to be a big one. Because some of you might be, as Ben likes to say, screaming at your windshield and punching your steering wheel right now. Because... Indeed, James Ingram is not the lead singer of Journey. It's Steve Perry. I don't know how I mix this up. Again, you're you're making notes. It's Fast and Furious, and somehow the wires got crossed. Steve Perry, lead singer of Journey. Uh, also, while I'm at it, I say Don't Stop Believing, then I start singing Separate Ways lyrics. I realize those are two different songs. I was not trying to confound them. I just got really excited, and I always love singing Separate Ways, so... <laughs> Just wanted to set that record straight as well. Now, James Ingram is at this recording. He comes in around six minutes, and he comes in after Springsteen and Stevie Wonder do a duet. There's another chorus. Then we get James. He does his part, and then Ray comes back in and brings us home at the end of the recording. Now, Just a fun side note, 80s diehards such as yourself listeners may know James from a duet of his own with Linda Ronstadt for the animated movie An American Tale, the story about Five Mouskiewicz. He and Linda sing Somewhere Out There, that Grammy award-winning song Became one of the biggest songs for animated movies, I think since the 50s at that time. Uh, so it really was a big blowout success. And uh, that's where you might also know James. And then lastly, since I have you here, between when we recorded this episode and you listening to this now, something amazing happened. A little thing dropped on Netflix called The Greatest Night in Pop, the untold story behind We Are the World. And that released in January of 2024. And my goodness, what serendipity. We had no clue this was coming out. It wasn't announced at the time we made this episode. Not a month or two later, here it has been dropped on The World. So if you're really curious about this production and how it all came together and hearing from the people who were there that night, you should definitely go check out the documentary on Netflix. You're not going to hear us talk about it in contemporary culture because again, we didn't even know it existed at that time, but this was a perfect place for me to drop that in. Okay. That I think is it for our editor's note. Please enjoy the rest of We Are the World. Ah, great voice. Again, we're going to say this a million times. So many unique voices. There's not a person, I think, really who sings that you're like, that could be three different artists. If I, if I did the Pepsi challenge and closed my <laughs> eyes, I wouldn't know if it's Coke <laughs> or Pepsi. No, you could pinpoint these folks just by hearing their voice. Absolutely. You know, you brought up Rock. I'm not a fanboy of this artist. I love their music. I respect everything
1: they've done, but I don't like own all the albums. But you know, the last solo they record that night is Bruce Springsteen, the
2: boss. Yes. And
1: when he comes on, he's got that like banged, strained rocker face. And he he sure does so much passion. Yeah. Is amazing. Quincy Jones has a really good recounting of it. And he says, quote, one of the hardest working cats I've ever met before my life. I kept waiting for him to get tired and sit down and rest. He kept saying, want me to do it again? He's saying the words as if a child were dying in his arms right then and there. His sandpaper rasp trailing into something like grief at the end of each line. And when he'd finished, he opened his eyes and shuffled away from the mic. Everybody else broke into applause, especially Diana Ross, sitting cross-legged on the piano bench behind him, Springsteen being a ham, flapped his hands as if telling everybody
2: more, more, and then thank you, thank you. (laughs) Like, wow. Like, I love his performance in this. The dude gives 110%. It's definitely boss level contributions to this. Yeah. You know, the other soloists, you've got Tina Turner. Yeah. Billy Joel. And I think this is when you get to Michael Jackson, where you get to his pre-recorded, we are the world, we are the children. Yeah, yeah. And Michael, he's got the glove on. This is like 80s-tastic Michael. He's got the whole outfit. He doesn't have the glasses on at this part. He doesn't have the shades, the aviators at this part. But he's got the glove. Like, the thumb is in the pocket. He's, like, tapping this thigh. We are the way, Yeah. You know, like, well, uh, And he's got the black jacket, the black suit jacket, yes. with all the gold embroidery. He's got those sparkly socks that twinkle when he walks. Like, yeah. he looks awesome. And then you get this string of legends. You go from him to Diana Ross to Dionne Warwick to <laughs> Willie <laughs> Nelson. Yeah. And again, that's where you kind of get one of those genre jumps of, like, Dionne Warwick and then Willie Nelson. Yes. <laughs>
1: Speaking of sort of in the Willie Nelson camp, what
2: did you think? Did you read much about Bob Dylan that night? So um, it was a little bit in the documentary. Yeah. Bob looked like he did not know where he was. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah. I don't know Bob's state of mind. He's not one of my favorite artists by far. Yeah. I appreciate his contributions, but I'm not a big Dylan fan. I don't really care for his voice. Sorry, everybody. It's just a personal preference. Every shot of him both in the making of and the actual music video, looks as if he has no earthly clue as to what's going on. (laughs) Um, You see this a lot in the making of, which I very much appreciated, because you think these are artists, they're all geniuses, they all know their own voice, they know their strengths, they're all going to come in, you know, they can go, me, 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 no, 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 you're here, I'm there. You know, They're going to do that. And then they just like belt it out. There's a lot of iteration that we don't see. We see the final product, sounds amazing, looks sharp, there's so much, particularly, I love this, the bridge people. That's what like yeah, he, Cindy Lopper, right. and Kim Carnes called themselves the bridge people. The bridge people. Michael kicks it off, and then it goes into those three. They spend a lot of time working out their harmonies. Yeah. And yeah. getting the just the right kind of tone. And then, like Cindy Lopper's, like jewelry is clinging, right. and at they one have point, to, like, Quincy's stop the like, right? yeah, Quincy's like, Cindy, you gotta take it off. She's like, oh, I'm so sorry. Like, <laughs> it's so <laughs> it's awesome. She's great. with her great accent. She's like, I'm sorry, I didn't realize it. You know, and she's messing with that, and so, and then the same is true with Bob because they get to Bob's part, and there was just like a lot of work going into it, but like everybody was very respectful. Sure. Everybody was trying their hardest. And like, you could see Quincy, like encouraging Bob, like, oh yeah, buddy, that was a good one. We got it there. And it's just funny. The way he's like talking to Bob is like, there's deference, but it's also like, good job sport. Like it's really interesting. I I mean, what
1: I read is like, you know, Bob Dylan really wanted to be a part of this because like as a folk musician, like most of everything he wrote was about trying to bring attention to social and political issues that were hurting people. So he's Mm. like, this is right over home plate for me. But for some freaking reason, when he got in the room with everybody, he had like a wave of anxiety and he was like really nervous if he was singing it right or wrong or whatever. There's this point in the documentary where Stevie Wonder calls Bob Dylan over to the piano and Stevie sings back to Bob his part, but doing an impression of Bob Dylan. So Stevie Wonder is singing as (laughs) Bob Dylan trying to coach Bob Dylan how to sing the part And Bob eventually gets it. It's great. But I just never seen Dylan like in that form before. It was really fascinating.
2: Yeah, it's kind of interesting when, I guess you don't think about it. You're like, these are all accomplished artists. You would think, obviously, you're going to have heroes in the room. You're going to have people you admire, maybe even people who inspired your careers, right? But I guess you think at a certain point, like, hey, we've all made it. We're in the same club together. But to see people, especially a Bob Dylan, who, you know, top of his game still at that point oh, and yeah. for many you know more years to come to have that kind of anxiety is just interesting and i guess you know right. we all have to realize that you can be profoundly successful and still have i don't know if you had imposter syndrome but still feel overwhelmed by the talent you're surrounded by oh yeah yeah any other stand
1: i mean i've got a whole list here. i could go on all night like any other standout moments for you performances
2: I will say I the bridge is one of my favorite parts, you know. I, I just I like the progression of going from Michael, when you're down in earth there ain't no hobby. Yeah. And then Huey he comes in, if you just believe there's nowhere we can fall.
0: Yeah. You know, like it's and then, wow, 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 you know, yes. so Cindy
2: comes in and then cards and then they all three harmonize together and that Cindy really does her good. like, yeah, yeah, scream. It's just a great part of the song. It it's is. so cool. It really, I loved,
1: yeah, I have the same notes. I love that part. Absolutely.
2: The other thing I'll mention, Ray Charles's part, like he Dude. really comes in at the yeah. end. Dude. Now his part was also recorded separately. Like, I don't think you ever see him in the big chorus, right? Was he in the big chorus part? I can't remember if you see him in that crowd. Mm, I can't remember. I can't
1: remember. But his his talk about
2: his end solo kind of thing. His part's really great, and the way it's presented is interesting. But like the behind the scenes, oh my Ray God. just kind of goes into a a full body trance. Yes, and just sort of like ad libs, vamps plays, sings, he's just like full body dancing. He's at the microphone, he's at the uh, piano. He's not, he's just kind of all over the board. And he's basically like, here's a bunch of material use as you see fit. He doesn't say that, but that's effectively, all right, there you go. And everyone's just kind of sitting there like, holy crap. But the way they like interweave his parts into the song feels seamless. But I really feel like they had their work cut out for him because he gave them just all kinds of stuff. Oh, yeah. But, like, he's kind of tapping. He's not tap dancing, but his shoes are kind of clicking on the wood floor. And I just have to imagine, as a sound editor, what a nightmare to kind (laughs) of, like, (laughs) peel all of that out, but to preserve his voice so that you can get his performance. Oh, my God. But, uh, yeah, that was just, like, really interesting to see the process versus what we see as the the finished product of this song and video.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you mentioned him. Really, for me, that, like, beyond Michael, who's great. Like the standout performances for me are Ray Charles and Stevie Wonder. Like I think okay. they are just freaking amazing. For we just said about Ray Charles, it's it was the inspiring homework for me. I just want to go download a bunch of Stevie Wonder and Ray Charles records and like yeah. and albums. Like their voices are so good. There's so much like passion and energy behind what they're doing, so much talent, like like, when Stevie is singing in this music video, like, you can feel every ounce of his soul and his body is, like, coming out of mm. his throat. Like, it's just, God, they're so freaking good.
2: <laughs> they're so good. Well, and there's there's kind of like a, what would you call it? A duet, a call and a response or whatever, a handoff between at the end, it's... Uh, Stevie Wonder yeah. and Bruce Springsteen, I love that. And they're like singing off of each other, and it's kind of got that '80s like screen fade where you see both of them, and they're like yeah singing toward each other, but they're not in the same room, kind of a thing. Because some of these, it's literally people walking up to the microphone, singing, backing up, so the next artist can come in and sing their part, and then they, you know, both kind of huddle together to sing their like combined harmony. I'm just curious. I don't. I wonder if they planned that or it just sort of worked out yeah, where they did like a bunch question. of different artists. And then, okay, well, let's do a pair up and see. Because Bruce has a bigger part in this than I remembered. Oh, my gosh. I had no idea he was going to be so big in it. And he really is. Because he's got both a solo and the duet with Stevie at the end, which is interesting because, I mean, Bruce is great. I, I'm not a huge fan of his, but like his voice is just very, what's the right word? Um, it's gravelly for sure, but it's. It's not overpowering, but it's a lot, It is a I lot. guess, for him to be in this as much as he is. And,
1: I mean, we're getting into the weeds here, but he had, like, just performed the night before. And he, like, flew from coast to coast and, like, rented a car mm. and drove straight to this thing. Like, he had just done a huge stadium show and still had that voice to rock out. Like, probably oh. slept on the plane. I don't know. Nuts. Right. There's just a couple things from the documentary that stood out that we didn't, but before I get it, I mean, who am I, who am I to criticize These gods of music. But the only thing in the music video that I was like, hmm, that's a little weird. It's like right before a minute seven, the camera's panning across the full crowd. And Lionel Richie gives like a real cheesy thumbs up. Just like a big thumbs up to the camera with a grin. He sure does. He sure does. And like, look, Lionel's heart is really in this. Like there's a version of the music video you can watch where there's like at the end... It's Lionel, like, sitting in a nice chair in, like, a library, and he gives a speech about, like, what's going on in Ethiopia and what the song means. Like, he very much authentically cares about this thing. Yeah. But it is just the only
2: part of the music video for me where I was like, mm, that's a little funny. Like, that's about it. Yeah, there's, I mean, there's not a lot that, I mean, again, there's the weirdness of, like, Dan Aykroyd being there totally. without any seemingly plausible explanation. Very curious about that. Yeah, I, I don't know that there's anything that doesn't quite work for me. I definitely noticed that point where he just does the thumbs up. It's kind of funny. Right. I think what I, I just continued to be impressed by, and this was some of the the praise for it, was how much everything worked so well together. Yeah. I, I, I just thought that was really cool. A couple other harmonies that were in there. So I think I mentioned several of these, but um, oh, Tina Turner and Billy Joel do one together, which is super right. cool. Right, like what a fascinating pairing. And then I mentioned, you know, you go from Dionne Warwick to Willie Nelson, but they they do also work off of each other. And Willie Nelson, by the way, just turned 90 this year. Crazy. Oh, good for him. Probably still touring
1: and performing, I would assume. Probably. mean the there's, guy is.
2: There's a movie that just came out about him called Long Story Short. Willie Nelson, ninety. Oh wow! Okay, you might have to look it up and see if you can find it. It popped up on Spotify for me, as a matter of fact. Oh, it's one cool. of those things where, you're like, is my phone listening to me? Because <laughs> is my phone <laughs> like, listening to me? I'm going to be talking about this, and all of a sudden something pops up. It's probably it's probably nothing, but nevertheless, uh, Siri, don't come at me. Chris, did you say play Willie Nelson 24-7 <laughs>
1: 365?
2: Again, I, I loved all of that. I, there is something I do want to talk about, though. You mentioned it earlier in history class. Yeah. we talk about Harry Belafonte. Oh, there yeah.
1: There is yeah. a great oh, moment.
2: God. Talk about this moment in the making of documentary.
1: It's such like a beautiful, sweet moment. So you've got to remember. I mean, we've we've thrown out so many big names. You've got to remember, like, Harry Belafonte is the first like performer who's involved to put this whole thing together. Yeah. And so he's sort of in the back middle risers, not far from Dan Aykroyd, actually kind of That's in true. the back. And so in the making of documentary, this occurs at 15 minutes. If you want to like fast forward when you find it on YouTube, but Ray Charles and Lionel Richie just start kind of breaking out like Dale, Dale. And again, yeah. like they've been working all night recording this thing. And like, You know, like we've talked about with Stevie Wonder and Ray Charles, like... There's so many people just trying to keep the mood up because this is hard work. It's a lot of egos that were supposed to be checked
2: at the door. Everyone's pretty cool though, from what I heard. But like, but it's also a lot of waiting. Like, if it's not your part, you're just kind of sitting there waiting. Like, it's just a, it's a lot. And you might be like, oh, not a big deal. But it's like these people just came from a big award show. Look, if you've ever been to an event, I actually came from an award show, basically from work today. Oh, really? I was tired. But I was like, I got a rally. I took a little cat nap, not going to lie. When I came home, I was like, I need to be re-energized for this. But it's like, it's a lot. And these people were here for hours on end. They were there until the sun came up. They were past sun up. So, yeah. I mean, now I nominated you for best podcast co-host.
1: Did you win at your award show?
2: (laughs) Sadly, that was not a category, but I appreciate the nomination nonetheless. My uncontested category.
1: (laughs) But like, it's just adorable. Like everyone starts to join in. And yeah. the camera, like, pans to Belafonte, who just, like, this oh smile, God. he is beaming. And again, you know, he did the most famous rendition of Deo, and everyone yep. starts singing along, and he's singing along, and even, like, Billy Joel finally cracks his anxiety, and he's laughing, and he's kind of into it, like, it's just the most, one of those heartwarming behind-the-scenes moments of the whole thing.
2: But Belafonte does look embarrassed at one point. You can kind of see like he's like smiling, like he appreciates what they're doing, but he's also like a little embarrassed. No, this yeah. is also where Dylan looked 100,000% confused AF all of the artists kind of start joining in singing this song and Dylan's just sitting there like he's never heard it before and has no <laughs> oh, idea what to do. Poor Bob Dylan. You poor guy. Poor Bob. I think I accidentally said that Billy Joel had the anxiety.
1: It was, uh, it, was it was Bob Dylan who had the anxiety. But look, you and I feel that embarrassment all the time. When we walk around Seattle, so many people come up to us and start singing the <laughs> 80s high theme song. And we're like, we know. Uh, here we go again. And then the I selfies. can't go get a
2: $15 Crunchwrap Supreme at my local Taco <laughs> bell without someone coming up going take a look on back, back a few decades, decades past past and the i'm time. like oh yeah no, okay fine. I'll, yeah I'll, let me I'll, sign the cd i'll sign yeah, your okay. hot sauce packet no problem give me your jewel but, case yeah i'll do it um <laughs> <laughs> sign the hot sauce packet. i'll sign your hot sauce packet the only but i only sign the fire i only sure, sign the fire packets there
1: are no other packets there Those we don't, the don't do anything mildly Virginia.
2: around here there's there's no mild or sure. even well, I've never been accused of being hot. So clearly fire, fiery,
1: 100%. The, al- the only other two things I want to touch on for the documentary that I just really appreciated is that, again, before everyone started singing, the BBC journalist who did the first expose documentary on it he's at the studio and he gives a big speech on like what he saw in Ethiopia mm. to like kick the night off before they really get down to recording. Yeah, It's sort of like the two women that TV wonder brought in from Ethiopia of like, it reminds you of like, whoa, we are here to like actually hopefully make a real positive impact. Like let's do something right. important, which is really good. Not that music Absolutely. in and of itself is not important, but just saying. And the last part you kind of touched on it, but the other part I love I, and gang, it's only 45 minutes long. Like It is one of the best documentaries you're going
2: to watch this year. Like, go watch it. It's amazing. Where does it rank among your favorite labyrinth making of documentary, which famously you loved so much because of of how it was constructed.
1: They're real (gasps) close. They're neck and neck.
2: Okay. All right.
1: But what I love about you already talked about this, but it's just so fun to watch these artists work. You know, yeah. around the room, people are, like, trying to match their harmonies. Uh, 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 they're, like, flat, sharp. Everyone will sing, and, yeah. and, uh, and Quincy Jones will be like, whoa, 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 cut, cut, cut. Okay okay, 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 guys, try about this. And then different groups get together. They share their sheet music. They're scribbling. They're talking about stuff. There's people in the recording box who are, like, on the phone being like, yeah, no, get down here. Or like, this thing, we'll have it by Monday. Like...
2: I don't know. Just watching the soup get made is just really cool in this. And apparently there's some D-bag publicists running around, <laughs> like giving marching orders to everybody. <laughs>
1: Michael wrote the song! Blah, blah, blah.
2: I think they artfully did not include him. I don't remember seeing any no, I don't you know, remember. jerk store running around, acting right. like he ran those joints. So, right. thankfully. I do
1: want to throw out, this was top of mind for me when we were researching this. So I, I really wanted to go look it up and make sure what was going on. But remember, Paul Simon is in the studio. He's yeah. in the recording. And I went back and listened to our Graceland episode and checked our notes. This song is recorded in, again, at the end of January 85. And the next month, Paul Simon flies to Africa, South Africa, to record Graceland. So, like oh, that close. The next month. Wow. You know, it was already on his mind. Like he was already, he had seen the documentary that the BBC had put out. He was thinking about it. And actually that night, he discusses the idea of Graceland with Quincy Jones and Hera Belafonte. And they were both like, you okay. got to go. You should go do it. And like, that's part of the reason Graceland happened. Because he was at the freaking We Are the World recording with Belafonte and Jones.
2: I always love it when we get these connections in this podcast. So yeah, folks, definitely go check out that Graceland episode. It's uh, early season one. You'll find it there. It was a, a great discussion. You can learn more about the, the history of that. And a lot of controversy, for sure, with him doing that. Been I think before we go to contemporary culture and find out not only what impact did this have, not only in the 80s, but beyond this, we are the world sensation. We know it's taken off. We know it's done some great in the world. To truly understand the impact, we have to get to contemporary culture, but I think we need to swing by the cafeteria first. Yeah have lunch, maybe even learn about choose your own adventure and why it's awesome and you should go like check it out and get a good deal on some books and then what do you say we reconvene in contemporary culture and talk about what comes next? I think that's great. I actually think there might be a scholastic book fair down
1: there today so I do not want to (gasps) miss anything. I brought my 10 bucks. I'm stoked. Oh my gosh. Forget lunch.
2: I'm going to buy books.
0: Coca-Cola says it's the real thing but pepsi cola believes that when it comes to colas the only real thing is taste that's why the pepsi challenge has been asking thousands of people across the country to let their own taste decide and the fact is nationwide more people prefer the taste of pepsi over coca-cola pepsi 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 i like pepsi a lot better pepsi tastes better taste that's the real thing so take the pepsi challenge and let your taste decide
2: Beware and warning! This book is different from other books. You and you alone are in charge of what happens in this story. If
1: that brings back childhood memories of reading past your bedtime and keeping your fingers positioned just so in order to go back and cheat death, then you are part of the Choose Your Own Adventure
2: generation, the fourth best-selling children's book series of all time. Since 2006, Choose Your Own Adventure has relaunched copies of original 80s bestsellers as well well as all new books, tabletop games, and graphic novel adaptations of the famous gamebook series. If you decide to use all of your numerous
1: talents and much of your enormous intelligence to introduce interactive gamebooks to a new generation, visit CYOA.com. Use code 80 high for 20% off your first order. That's code 80 high. My backpack is sagging way down my back because I am full of books. I have oh no my cash, gosh. all books. That's my nickname right now. No cash, all books. That's who no I cash, am. No cash, all books. <laughs> so we are here in contemporary culture to find out what happened after the 80s that we are the world inspired. And boy, howdy, did it inspire a lot of things.
2: Yeah. And one thing I think that's really important with this is, you know, the organizer, Ken Cragen, His whole point, and the reason we wanted to shift this over to contemporary culture is because a lot of money does get raised in the 80s and then beyond. But their whole goal all along is like, look, we're not just going to like throw all this money right away because, you know, the foundation is really looking at long-term solutions for Africa's problems. So it's not just like quick Band-Aid fix, here's some money godspeed, we're done. It's really like systemically, how can we go about this for long-term solutions? And experts apparently had predicted it would take at least 10 to 20 years to make a slight difference to Africa's long-term problems. And so again, this is even larger than just the famine in Ethiopia, which is huge on its own, but it's really like systemically we know that there are a lot of issues running throughout the continent that we really need to figure out how do we disperse these funds and where and how. I like that there was that thoughtfulness there because yeah. you could easily just see like, you know, we hear about these benefits where, um, you know, a lot of money or GoFundMes where a lot of money is raised. And then it's just like, all right, here's a bunch of money. And then it's kind of like done. Yeah. I just like that there was a lot of mindfulness that went into really trying to look for solutions that would be lasting.
1: Right, totally. And so, I mean, you know, they're, they're raising this money. The record sales all go to this thing. There's merchandising. So there's like sweaters and t-shirts yeah. and lunch boxes, like sales from all that goes to this. People could just direct donate. You could just send money in, you could call. And so at least in the short term, what I saw is that within four months, they raised 10.8 million. So that's equivalent of 29 million today. By May, they had sold between 44, 5 million and 47 million worth of merchandise in the records. Wow. You know, again, while there's a long-term solution, there is a short-term need there, right? Yeah. So it was yep. it was that same year, June, June of 85, the first cargo jet heads to Africa. And on board uh, is food, it's got medicine, it's got clothing, and it's headed for both Ethiopia and Sudan. Harry Belafonte also visits in the first same month, and uh, he does kind of a four-nation tour of Africa making a lot of appearances with people who are suffering from it, as well as like heads of state. And I think you found this number by, we are the world's, since its release, the whole organization has raised over $63 million. Yeah. Not just this Ethiopian cause, the original famine and drought, but much more.
2: Yeah. I found that 90% of the money pledged went to African relief, both for long and short-term needs. Uh, The remaining 10% were earmarked for domestic hunger and homeless programs in the United States. Some of those long-term initiatives were efforts in birth control and food production. And I also saw that, you know, the parts that went to Africa, that 90%, there were over 70 recovery and development projects launched in seven nations. This is aid in agriculture, fishing, water management, manufacturing, reforestation, uh, as well as training programs in countries such as Mozambique, Senegal, Chad, Burkina Faso, Mali, and others. So... I love the fact that this was, again, is very intentional. And it was how do we set up programs and systems in place to ensure that, you know, hopefully this doesn't happen again, or at least lessen the severity if another drought shows up. Yeah, 100%. We're living in times of more weather extremes, you know, these days, of course. So, you know, having those systems in place are crucial, of course. Absolutely. Now, here's the thing. I don't know if this has ever happened to you, Chris, but did you ever, like,
1: learn a thing a long time ago and then, like... You were presented with confounding information later on, and you refused to accept the new information. And you're like, no, the thing I learned before is the thing. That's the way the thing is.
2: Ben, listen, you cannot convince me that Shazam wasn't an actual movie that starred Sinbad, that was totally the same thing as Kazam <laughs> with Shaquille O'Neal. I've never had that experience because I'm 100% correct. Um, <laughs> but for everyone else who clearly has, what. uh, I feel like you're leading to something. What's what's going on here? What's yeah, uh, so, the confounding info? So
1: if you were an adult when this came out, your memory of what happened with the funds is probably that they were pretty poorly distributed and mismanaged. Oh, Back okay. then, the news reports came out that the DERG, this, this was that sort of terrible dictatorships uh, yeah. government, intercepted a lot of the money. That they set up these sort of like fake humanitarian groups and that a lot of this We Are the World money went to them, which then in turn just fueled their military campaign against right. these rebel groups. So Ethiopia had actually very little of the money reached the Ethiopians in need. And largely that memory was fueled by, unfortunately, a BBC publicist named Martin Plout. Because on March 3rd, 2010, that's when he reported this story that a lot of that money went to buying weapons and armament and and fueling this. Oh, okay. And when that report came out, The organizers of Where Are the World went nuts and filed like legal complaints. And they're like, no, bro, we have the receipts. This is totally untrue. And it went to court. And after court, it was revealed yeah, there was no evidence that any of this money went to the military. It made it to the people
2: who needed it. Okay. So that's kind of where we sit right now. Right. Unfounded story. You know, this isn't the first time that a news report comes out, it's inaccurate. It is then repeated so much that it becomes the narrative, but we find out not actually true. Okay. Well, I mean, the, I feel a little bit better knowing that because gosh, you would hate to think that you were donating towards something good and you were actually just helping this terrible regime stay in power. My goodness. Right.
1: And talking about shifting
2: perspectives,
1: do you remember way back in history class, like an hour ago, <laughs> we talked about Bob Geldof. <laughs> Does that name ring a bell, Bob Geldof? Uh, yeah, I remember that name. What's old Bobby up to? Right. So Bobby, this is the guy, the producer was inspired and wanted to try and bring this thing together. So Bobby in 2010 told Australia's Daily Telegraph, quote, I am responsible for two of the worst songs in history. One of them being We Are the World. And in the autobiography said, it is a song that has nothing to do with music. It was all about generating money. The song didn't matter. The song was secondary, almost irrelevant. I was like, whoa, kill off. The performances are great in it.
2: What are you talking about, man? You know, if they just hired somebody to churn out something, you know, you you imagine like it's so calculated that an evil marketer came along (laughs) and was like, I got a song that the kids are going to chew up and we're going to make money galore, merchandising galore. This was like a passion project for so many of the original creators, Lionel, Michael, you know, Quincy coming on board, Kenny Rogers. I think that's... Not doing a, a great service to the song and how it was put together. Yeah. I don't care for that, Yeah, Mr. Geldof. Mr. Mr. Geldof, you sit down. No, thank you. No, thank I'll you, take Mr. That Geldof. salt and sass somewhere else, mister. <laughs> the salt and sass. So, Ben, you can imagine, and I think a lot of listeners can, there were so many parodies, Oh, my God. Homages. Yes nods, whatever you want to call them, in all kinds of media, shows, movies that are kind of referencing, again, spoofing off of this idea of this like charity song. We can't talk about them all because there's just too many, but I do want to talk about two because I remember them very specifically from either child or adulthood and- I also remember them because I knew they were referencing We Are the World. So I just wanted to talk about a couple of these because one of them comes a little bit quickly after, which is Married with Children.
1: Oh, my God. What a property. Did you
2: ever watch
0: Married
1: yes. with Children? Well, I mean, I probably shouldn't have been watching it at the time I was watching it, but I totally watched it.
2: Yeah. I'm with you, though. I think it's definitely a show I probably watched before I should have. Yeah. But um, what I want to reference is a season seven, actually, episode... Uh, nine. This is in 1992 and it airs called Rock of Ages. Yeah. And the gist of it is that Al Bundy Ed O'Neill's character, pretends to be an aging rock star and he calls himself Axel Bundy. Axel And Bundy. basically he runs into all of these musicians, I think, like at the airport. and somehow they all come together and form this super group called Old Aid. Oh my God. They perform a song called We Are the Old. And it's to raise money for themselves because of their health issues, alimony bills, etc. And so they do like a whole performance. And one of the lines, we are the old, we've got arthritis. We are the ones who wear bifocals and have bursitis. I thought this was the funniest set of lyrics ever. Totally. So it's fun to go revisit that because I, I love that episode as a kid. That's a great one. And then Ben, I sent you earlier this week a text with a video to YouTube. Oh my God! Because the other thing I thought of, and then this is going to have a really quick connection for our next thing, is an episode of Thirty Rock called "Kidney Now," season three, episode twenty-two, airs in two thousand nine. And the gist of this: Alec Baldwin's character Jack has uh, connected with his father, Alan Alda. Another eighties classic. Oh, nice. Yeah, name. for Mash, totally. Seventies and eighties classic. Sure. Basically, his dad needs a kidney transplant. He's not a suitable donor. So he's like, I'm going to create this We Are The World-style charity concert called He Needs a Kidney Now So funny to Find a Donor. And so they had this whole original song. It's written and arranged by 30 Rock's composer, Jeff Richmond, who, by the way, is Tina Fey's husband. Ben, you watched the video clip, right? Yes. Yeah, a hilarious song. Very, very funny. It's really silly. So the people in this, we've got Clay Aiken. We've got Wyclef John, Michael McDonald, you have two of the Beastie Boys, Mike D and Ad-Rock. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. You've got Elvis Costello, Sheryl Crow, Mary J. Blige, Adam Levine, Moby, Robert Randolph, and then... Cindy (laughs) Lauper. Oh, my God. I love that Cindy Lauper,
1: We Are the World alumni, makes an appearance. That's pretty cool.
2: And it's really funny. They make some joke at some point about, and two of us are drunk. And then, like, they start singing. And then later on, Cindy's like,
0: I'm one of the drunk ones. And she's
2: kind of, like, boozy and sort of stumbling around. It's so funny. Anyway, it's great. And, again, such a a lovely little homage to We Are the World. And what's cool is they did release a video on iTunes at that time. And the proceeds actually went to the National Kidney Foundation. So not only was it like a fun homage, but it also went on to, you know, do some good for uh, a great organization. That's awesome. But also 2009 is a hard year, right, Ben? Yeah. Yeah. We do lose the King of Pop in 2009. It's hard to believe that was 2009. It's one of those where it feels like it's recent and it also feels like a long time ago. It's like that weird passage of time thing. Yeah. But yeah.
1: And so at his memorial service... On July 7th, the finale of his whole memorial service features a group rendition of We Are the World and Heal the World. Yes. Daryl Finesse leads We Are the World. He'd worked with Jackson since the 80s. A lot Richie and Jackson's family and children are there singing along. And it was the first time it actually re-entered the US Trust for the first time since its 85 release. But there's this testimony from, oh my God, the memorial service. I'm going to try and read this. I'm going to do my best. This, this is kind of long, but it's a really cool story, contemporary, about Jackson and this impact. Mm. So there's Elias Kifle Mariam Bayan, who grew up in Ethiopia and was a beneficiary of the aid back then. And yeah. he gave this speech. And a part of it, he goes, I won't ever forget Michael Jackson because his contribution to the song, We Are the World, had a very significant effect on my life. I am now 50, but 25 years ago, I was living in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, which at the time was suffering from a long drought and famine. It was a terrible situation. Lots of people became sick and many more died. Around 1 million people in all were killed by the famine. In 1984, Michael Jackson, along with a number of other leading musicians, made the song We Are the World to raise money for Africa. We received a lot of aid from the world, and I was one of those who directly benefited from it. The wheat flour that was distributed to the famine victims was different to the usual cereal we bought at the market. We baked a special bread from it. The local people named the bread after the great artist and became known as Michael Bread. It was soft and delicious. When you've been through such hard times, you never forget events like this. If you speak to anyone who was in Addis Ababa at that time, they will all know what Michael Bread is, and I know I will remember it for the rest of my life.
2: That's amazing. Right? Come on. And his memorial service is reportedly viewed by more than one billion people. Yeah, with a B. With a B. I mean, clearly a huge impact that he had, but how cool that it's like, oh, Michael Bread, like that's a thing that people would right. know.
1: I love that story. I just, I really wanted to share that. I love that story.
2: Now, and you mentioned Heal the World. This is like another song that came up that didn't quite reach the same level of status, but that Michael recorded- for another one of the efforts that USA for Africa did, if I remember correctly. yeah, I went and listened to it. It's definitely a song that I remember hearing, but it doesn't, you know, it doesn't quite strike like We Are The World does, but uh, certainly is another passion plea for helping those in need.
1: Yeah, 100%. Six months later, there is a magnitude seven earthquake that hits Haiti on January 12, 2010. It's the worst one in two centuries in the area. Nearly a quarter million die? More than a quarter million get injured, more than a million are homeless. Just as a a comparison, the total population at the time of Haiti was 9.7 million people, which is just a little bit bigger than the island of Manhattan, just a little bit bigger than New York City. So a
2: ninth of those
1: people lost their homes.
2: And as I remember, the country was like leveled. Totally nuts. You might be thinking like magnitude seven, that sounds bad, but it's not like it doesn't seem devastating, but it's like when you don't have the infrastructure to withstand something like that, yeah. that is a tragedy beyond words. The artists of the time, actually Quincy Jones, right? Is like, is it Quincy or is it Lionel? Who's basically like, we should do another song. We should do an update yeah. to We Are The World.
1: Yeah. Both of them are like, let's make this happen again.
2: Okay. Right, right, right.
1: So they're back in the same studio, a and Recording Studios, where they all were for We Are The World two weeks later, February 1st, to record it with over 75 different performing artists.
2: Yeah, that's huge.
1: And there's a music, a much, uh, a much more produced music video. It's a very nice on. way to put it. Yeah, by Paul Haggis. This is the guy who directed Crash and Million Dollar Baby. That's right. Which, I mean, both incredible movies. I mean, he's he knows what he's doing behind a camera. Right. But I'll just say like the, the music video is an extremely different vibe than We Are the World, with just the production yes. quality of it, especially.
2: That is very accurate.
1: A couple of history things, and then I want to hear what you thought about it if you watched it, but I do like that Michael Jackson's mom requests that Janet Jackson does like a, a duet with Michael
0: yeah. posthumously,
1: like uh, like from his original singing, which is very cool. And there is a Spanish version written and performed by Emilio and Gloria Estefan, Somos el Mundo.
2: Mm. This is the 25 for Haiti movement. Did you watch the music video? Oh, I sure did. I had to, of course. Just a, a few names that pop up in here. You know, we already mentioned Quincy Jones, Lionel Ritchie. Uh You also have Wyclef Sean, who is Haitian-American. Yeah. And he actually does sing a part of it uh, in the second chorus in Haitian Creole. Oh, that's what that is. I was wondering what he's yeah. singing. Now I know. Thanks. Yeah, yeah. And I'm sure we'll talk about that part. But you know, we have Tony Bennett, my goodness. Right, I when I saw that. him, I was like, Tony freaking Bennett's <laughs> love, here? Like, holy crap. Tony the Bennett's crooner there. himself? My so goodness. Good. He's amazing. This is kind of funny because I mentioned a couple names. These people showed up in that Kidney Now episode of 30 Rock at a fake benefit. Oh, yeah. They're actually back for the real benefit. Mary J. Blige, Adam Levine, and um, Wyclef. I believe Wyclef was in yeah. that episode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they're actually back for a real benefit, which I just thought was interesting. You also have Barbara Streisand. Babs, she's there. Babs, pink. Yeah, she's so Usher. good at it. Celine Dion. Celine I'm is I'm not also a big Celine good. fan. Yeah. I'm not a big Celine fan. She kills it in this. Your she sounds amazing. Your heart doesn't go on? Your, it doesn't? My heart does not go on, sorry. Oh, dear. We do have Kanye West. Uh, we- <laughs> Kanye's there. Kanye is there. LL Cool J, Busta Rhymes, Carlos Santana rocking it out on the guitar. It's pretty awesome, of course. Fergie, Enrique Iglesias, Jana Jackson you mentioned, Josh Groban, the Jonas Brothers are all there, Lil Wayne, Tony Braxton... Oh, Jamie Foxx. Jamie Foxx also, I think, was another person trying to like he's make sort of, this happen. Like, yeah, he's sort of a producer. He does like a whole opening speech. He's almost like the Harry Belafonte of this one. Like yeah, he kind of has the seat as well. And of course, yeah, Quincy and Lionel are on board. Of course,
1: that's a great way to put it.
2: And so you think, okay, yeah, this amazing slate of artists. We have way more about double, almost not quite, yeah. but we have the original. Who should kick this song off? Dude. Who's the voice? Dude. Okay, Lionel did it the first time. Lionel's like, you know what? I did it the first time. We don't want to rehash. They do have Michael come back. Like, they don't have him come back, of course. He's passed away. But they have his original We Are The World chorus is integrated into it, as you mentioned. Janet performs a duet. But those people don't matter because who really matters to kick this thing off? If you're... The voice of all generations. (laughs) Oh, my God.
1: If you're under 30... What we're about to say is not going to bother you. This is fine. If you're over 30... I don't know if that's even
2: true. If you're, a It chi- might still bother it might.
1: you. But if you're a child of the 80s, please pull over and stop your vehicle. Stop <laughs> operating heavy machinery. If you're getting dinner ready, please do not chop any vegetables right now.
2: This is a long lead in. The
1: first solo is Justin Bieber.
2: Yeah. <laughs> all of this talent we just mentioned, all these names, your kickoff... Is the beebs. Even when you put out, like, Wycliffe is part Haitian. Like, that makes
1: way more sense. Like, a, a, like a name yes. that that Haitians are like, that's our Start guy.
2: off with Wycliffe for crying out loud. Oh, my boo. Okay, so do we want to talk about our feelings about this? We've talked about some of the artists involved.
1: No, I mean, I do want to talk about our feelings with this in the context of, again... This is being done for the right purpose, right? It's bringing attention to a humanitarian need, trying to raise money for it. That is so
2: important. That is good. And so I think we should talk about, there are legitimate, I think, issues. And there are things that are matters of taste, right? Like I think some of these are just like, not my style, not my jam. Listen, Justin's accomplished. Clearly he has a much bigger career than I do. We can't deny him that. I just think it's an odd choice. But the oddest choice, in my opinion... This thing is auto-tuned AF.
1: I heard that too. There's auto-tune like everywhere. to a
2: disgustingly obnoxious level. You have this many amazing artists and voices. Why are you auto-tuning them? And the first time I heard it, I was like, did this one artist just want to be auto-tuned? And I was like, maybe that's their thing, right? Like maybe there's sure. somebody out there yeah. who like they always sing an auto-tune. I don't know. But then I kept hearing it and I was like, no, they're auto-tuning the Jesus out of everybody. It is a bad choice. It's a harsh judgment, but I'm going to say it
1: anyway. I feel like by using autotune in this music video and this recording, you're saying that the artists are more important than the cause at the end of the day. Ooh, You're trying to make them sound better at singing. So it's not so much about, hey, let's all get together at this last minute and try and raise a lot of money. It's it's more about the end production quality. And that's very different than We Are the World.
2: I mean, Huey messed up a lot of his practice lines. And you see a bunch of them in that documentary. You see a lot of time with the bridge people and Huey's not always hitting the notes, but they didn't go auto-tune him. It wasn't a thing, thank heavens. But even if it was more stylistic rather than to cover up for some like flat notes or whatever, we're talking about it. We shouldn't be talking about it. It's distracting from the song. Why are you creating a thing That is distracting.
1: Right, right. To me, it just seems
2: like a bad choice. I don't see a good case for it when you had these people who are talented musicians. And if someone can't hit the notes, put them in the chorus. Right. Not everyone gets a (laughs) solo. Put it where Dan Aykroyd is. Come on. Put it with Dan Aykroyd Which, by the way, did you see the uh, obligatory actor who can't sing in this one? No, wait, remind me. Who was there? Almost standing in the exact same place that Dan Aykroyd was in the original, Vince Vaughn.
1: Oh, that's an interesting choice. So we have John Candy,
2: Dan Aykroyd, Vince Vaughn. Again, to my knowledge, not a musician. Never heard the man sing a song. Maybe he's got a beautiful voice. Wait, dodgeball
1: champion of Average Joes, Vince Vaughn, sitting up there. That's interesting. Vince
2: is looking around like he is. He's having the best day ever. That he knows he won the lottery. He's singing. He's smiling. He's looking and just like he can't figure out where his attention needs to be because there's so much going on. That's cool.
1: That's pretty cool,
2: actually. So Vince, you you brought it. There's some critiques about the choice of artists. There's a bunch of people who I would say are non-traditional artists. And by traditional, I mean, I'm singing somewhere and I'm found by a scout and I come in through the system. Yeah. You know, Beeper's a good example. He was a YouTube person. Yeah, and hit it big.
1: Well, sort of like the the Clay Aiken from your Thirty Rock episode. Yes. Those kind of guys.
2: Well, I think Jennifer Hudson is there, and I think she was a American Idol contestant, yeah. right? If I remember correctly. Yeah. So there's like people who came up into the industry through different means, and that didn't bother me as much, in as much as I felt like the calculation there was not everyone experiences music the same. If we want to reach out to people across all ages. There's going to be people who have their favorite YouTube performers, their favorite people who are YouTubers who struck it big, their favorite people who made it through a an American Idol type contest, whatever. That didn't bother me as much, but it did seem like an interesting mix, especially when you had that many people. There were a lot of faces where I'm like, don't know that person, don't know that person.
1: Yeah, that made me feel a little old that there were a lot of people that I was like, you know, you can watch Weird of the World and I can name, I don't know, at least two thirds of everyone just on a pass. But yeah. this one, I'm like... Man, I don't know a lot of these people. I was it was making me feel uncool, other critiques or opinions or thoughts either yours or that you read about. I encountered two challenges. One, it bothers me how heavily produced it is. It goes back to the same yes. thing with autotune of like how heavily shot it is. You know, it's the artist, but then it cuts to like scenes in Haiti. It also cuts extremely fast. You don't have a lot of time to figure out what you're looking at in Haiti or what oh, artists are yeah. singing. I just don't prefer that. I liked where in the original, the music video was just in the studio. It was just the artists. And you really felt like a lot more intimate there with the artists, that this was important to them, that this meant a lot. And this felt more like a, I don't know, like something different.
2: It reminded me of those Sally Struthers commercials where it's like, they're showing you pictures of people suffering to tug at your heartstrings and get you to, to give money. And look, it's an effective strategy. I won't deny that. I see them all the time for dogs that are living in kennels or bad conditions or whatever. In the and like, they're... arms of an angel, yes, right? fly away. I understand why it's there, but I kind of agree with you. Like, I don't think it's necessary to get the point across, but what do I know? I don't know what makes people want to give money and maybe putting an actual face or visual to what's going on makes it more real and gives you a psychological connection. I don't know, but yeah. I agree. Stylistically, I didn't like that as much. And like um, the Heal the World song that Michael Jackson did was very much in that same vein, where it was like a lot of inner cuts of children, people suffering, yeah, unsanitary conditions, you know, poor living conditions, all that kind of stuff.
1: The only other one that stuck out to me, and I'm going to try and get into this really delicately. And again, I'm just one dude. I'm one guy. Take my—don't don't even take my opinion. Not even a grain of salt. Put the salt out. It's not even good for you anyway. You shouldn't have a lot of sodium in your diet. This is just me. But I want to talk about The Bridge. The Bridge is a really extended, really long group rap. Yeah. The reason why it strikes me weird— or out of place, is again, you know, again, this episode, again, is all about We Are The World, so that's the focus here, that's the anchor, that's the origin. No style of music was singled out in We Are The World. You know, Lionel and Michael studied national anthems, they tried to make something that was sort of a blend of a lot of different things, and it was the voice singing the lyrics that gave you the insight into different music genres. Yeah. And even the bridge that Huey Lewis and Cyndi Lauper sing on is like seven seconds long. It's like lines from the song, and then it's over, and it's not really like punk rock or pop right it's the normal song but this pulls out one specific genre of music and gives it like a fifth of the whole song and that just felt antithetical to the idea of like we're all coming together to do this one thing together yeah that felt strange to solo out a single genre for
2: so long in this song well you're not the only person who feels that way that was a huge critique as well of the song and that you know Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, I missed that. Yeah, at the time. And I felt it kind of pulled you out of the song. This song did a whole lot to draw your attention away from what it's supposed to be doing. Yeah. It felt full of distractions. You know, apparently the other big issue some people had was, so Wyclef sings a part of it in uh, Haitian Creole, as I mentioned, has a very unique sound. Uh, If you've watched the video, you'll know what I'm talking about. And apparently a lot of people freaking hated that. And (laughs) so it's no wonder that like... Remember when Michael was like, let's put in some Swahili, and everyone's like, no! Right. Clearly, we can help people, but we can't incorporate the language of the people who are suffering that we're sending relief and aid to. It's got to be all in standard English. So that felt like a little E. Look, you may not be the style, but to Wyclef's credit, he sings it as part of the song. It's not like a full break from the song like the rap is, where it just feels like it's all of a sudden... (laughs) I don't know why I keep thinking that. And now it's time for a breakdown.
0: <laughs> yeah. Never going to get it, never going to get it. Like,
2: <laughs> it just felt like, you know, we're going to put a hard pause on the song to do a different thing and then we're going to come back to it. You know, that was jarring. Yeah, a bit jarring. And again, I, I think it was that. And to your other point, a lot of people did criticize like, hey, this had a lot of focus on rap and R&B and some other genres. Where's the country? Where's the rock? Where's like Latin music genres? very much missing from this, again, it's supposed to be an interweaving. And I like how you put it. It's not so much like, well, here's the banjo breakdown for the country folk. And Great. then here's the like electric guitar, slasher metal, you know, verse or whatever. It was the voices conveyed the genres because they were so identifiable.
0: Yeah.
2: Again, I, fr- I didn't realize that Ingram was the lead singer for Journey, but I knew that dude was freaking uh, yeah, just like rah, 80s rock to the core. And then I was like, Oh, it's a journey. Anyway, yeah, it was a mess. So much so that SNL made fun of it. <laughs> oh no! Did you watch it? Was there is there a good skit? Oh, I did watch the clip. I, I again, I'll just give some highlights. Keenan Thompson plays Quincy Jones, where he's like, "Certainly, you all know about We Are the World 25 for Haiti," highlighting the disaster. You know, sadly, the song itself. Was a disaster. A sloppy mess of half-famous randos. Oh, my God. And so the whole conceit is he's creating We Are The World 3, raising awareness for the We Are The World 2 disaster. Oh,
0: <laughs> my God. God. It's SNL.
2: That's and it's great. Salt uh, and spice. This is the a great era of SNL. You've got, like, Kristen Wiig. You've got... Jason Sudeikis, you've got Fred Armisen. Oh, my God. Uh, Keenan and I mentioned Bill Hader. Like, it's that era. Oh, what a team. And they're playing artists like Rihanna, Gwen Stefani, Shakira, Eddie Vedder. And they're like impersonations of them and that like kind of affectations of these musicians. It's hilarious. Willie Nelson, Adam Lambert, Lady Gaga, Melissa Etheridge, David Crosby, Josh Groban. Just to name a few of the kind of parody. It's really freaking hilarious. That's was awesome. I'm going to need to go watch that when we're done recording. I love it. It was so good. There's also, you can go find we are the world, Haiti 25, the YouTube edition. Oh, did you see this? Ben? Wait,
1: was this okay? This is maybe something where I felt a little too old and stuck in the eighties. Cause I think I read about this and it's a bunch of like famous YouTubers who sang the, the song.
2: Basically. Yeah. It's a, a collaborative charity song, music video. So singer songwriter, Lisa Lavey, Lavey is a YouTuber. And she decided, kind of in response to this, that she wanted to pull 57 contributors together, stitches this together, and then eight days after the official video, we get this YouTube edition. And a lot of people are like, I don't necessarily know these people, but the song is way better. It's not overproduced, it's just voices singing this song. Oh yeah. It ended up also raising a ton of money, so it was kind of wild. I couldn't quite see if it was a reaction to the overproduction because it came out so much quickly after, whether it was like a, hey, they're doing this, so let's do another version, sort of like a um in tandem version, or if it was like, what an overproduced mess, we can do better. But a lot of people were like, I actually prefer that one to the official. Really? Which is a bummer, because like Quincy Jones, come on, he's a freaking powerhouse.
1: It's kind of a letdown. Man, if Quincy Jones heard that a bunch of YouTubers like outperformed him on a song, that would would be (laughs) horrific. He's like, it's time for me to hang up my hat. Oh, man. So I want to bring it up to really contemporary culture because some of the spirit of this existed during the COVID pandemic.
2: Oh, yeah. And
1: the first one is kind of the first month when all this started getting nuts. It was in March in 2020. And I don't know if you remember this, but there were a bunch of, you know, everyone stuck at home. You're sort of meeting up on YouTube and virtual spaces to sort of try and do things together. And a bunch of celebrities came together and sang John Lennon's Imagine from their homes. And it kind of cut to different people. Yeah, I think I remember this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like it starts with Gal Gadot, Sarah Silverman's in there, Natalie Portman, Will Ferrell, Mark Ruffalo, Pedro Pascal, a bunch of SNL people are in it, speaking of SNL. Right. I couldn't find any evidence that it was like geared to raise money for anything yet. I think that was so early on in what was going on, like nobody knew what to do, like what was going on.
2: It's probably just like raising spirits, quite frankly. Really?
1: That's that's kind of what it seemed to be.
2: But also unity and solidarity, which is, you know, the underpinning of, yes. of the world, of course. So thousand yeah, percent for sure.
1: So like that sort of felt in the same spirit of a bunch of celebrities coming together and singing. Yeah. That summer, July 2020, a bunch of Chicago celebrities did the same kind of cut singing solos on YouTube, Sweet Home Chicago. And that was specifically to raise money for COVID-19, to like raise funds for vaccine development and um, Mm. personal protection devices. And so uh, Julie Louise Dreyfus is in that, Keenan Michael Key, Jim Belushi, a bunch of other Chicago celebrities are there. Nice. But the last one, and I actually attended this one. Oh. Uh, Well, attended virtually. Virtually attended. Sure. But it was in September 2020, just four months before our first episode of 80s High.
2: Whoa. Oh,
1: it was so awesome. And it's so 80s. That's why I wanted to leave it till the end. It was a virtual table read of the 1982 classic Fast Times at Ridgemont High.
2: Well, oh, you're bringing it back. I'm bringing it back. Fast
1: Times is back, and so it stars Jennifer Aniston, Dane Cook, Morgan Freeman, Jimmy Kimmel, Shia LaBeouf, John Legend, Ray Liotta, and of course, like Sean Penn returns to do the Spicoli role. No, someone else I does I hope so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's back, <laughs> he's back. And Brad Pitt and Julia Roberts are in it. I mean, it was like insane star level. Wow. Doing fast. I mean, and all the proceeds, you know, you could donate during it. I was actually kind of hosted by Dane Cook, was kind of like running it. Okay. So they were also raising funds for COVID-19. So you could like donate during it. So it, it felt kind of <clears> similar. <throat> it was sort of like a, t- a mix between telethon, like the old telethons, call in now. <laughs> and like, we are the world. It was kind of cool. Before we skip out of contemporary culture, the last thing I just want to say is that USA for Africa still exists today. You can go mm. right now to usaforafrica.org. You can donate. They're taking donations. A lot of the stuff they've worked on recently it really focuses on climate change issues, arts campaigns, mm. and medical supplies to Liberia and Sierra Leone, trying to stop Ebola. Royalties even today from We Are the World still goes to USA for Africa. So if you go to iTunes or wherever right now and you download We Are the World, a part of that goes back to USA for Africa still to this day uh, for a lot of really important causes throughout the continent.
2: That's awesome. I mean, talk about something we cover in this show that still has an impact today. Right? That might be the winner. That might be the one that really holds up super well because it's still doing good in the world, which is awesome. Big heart emoji. Big heart emoji.
1: So just like We Are The World, we have dropped a worldwide simultaneous publishing of this episode of 80s High, and it's time for us to go hear the call-ins from the listeners and ourselves, how we think We Are The World holds up today in 2023 in math class.
2: Excellent. I was going to run to the phone banks and start answering like it was a telethon, but I think I have to go to math (laughs) class first to do the assessment. (laughs) Looking forward to it.
1: And we're here in math class, and our podcasters are standing by to take your calls, uh, (laughs) all of our listeners, on how this song holds up today. Uh. So now that we're here, why don't you kick us off? How do you
2: feel that We Are the World holds up today? When I went to write this one, I was like, gosh, this one has a different feel than a lot of our other topics do. And I think it's because of the enormity of what we're grappling with, right? We've talked about famine, geopolitics, prosperity, inequity, social change, all these global factors in interplay. And it's like, this isn't just a movie that I remember as a kid, a cartoon that I used to watch in my PJs on Saturday. This is big. And I think at this high level, it's easy to look back at we are the world and be of one mind about it, right? You can either say, what an amazing spectacle. It achieved good for fellow humans in need, raised money to fight famine, continues to raise money. It created a sense of unity and oneness. And then you can also look at it with this kind of jaded lens that it was a superficial quick fix. It doesn't address the underlying problems. We're stroking the egos of wealthy Western (laughs) music artists as they hop into their limos and say, I did good. When it comes down to for me and what matters the most, I always want to side with coming together for a greater good.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: And that's true on a personal level. We talk about our family and our friends, the communities we live in, politics, state, country, world, all those levels. And this song not only raised over $60 million for Africa, but it encouraged all of those other benefits and relief organizations to aid people the world over. And it was a way for people who had privilege and influence to use their talents for good. And I think that's absolutely amazing. And like to speak to the jadedness, we're in a time when like algorithms and trolls are really trying to exploit divisiveness. And we have to do all the extra to rise above it because it has always been true that there is so much more we share in common with each other than that makes us different. And I think songs like this, are a good reminder of that. So was it a perfect thing? No, but is it awesome and a great effort? And would all of that relief had happened if not for all these people coming together to do this amazing thing? Probably not. So that's like the big macro level. When you zoom into this song and the music video, I mean, gosh, we've already talked about it. So much credit goes to that core team that orchestrated this performance, right? You had Harry, you had Quincy, Lionel, Michael, Bob, Kenny. It sounds amazing. It's catchy. The artists add their own uniqueness yet harmonize seamlessly. We talked about that. And in its own way, that does reflect how our individual contributions can shine while we stand together for something that's like beyond ourselves. Um, And considering the group of artists included, a lot of them at the height of their careers from these different musical genres, ethnicities, ages, there's a lot of power in that symbolism. The message, of course, itself, I think is timeless. Here we are nearly 40 years later, poverty and hunger still ever-present. And as long as we treat these lyrics and messages as aspirational, not congratulatory, I think there's still progress to make. And as we say on this show, there is an undeniable power in nostalgia, but I think there's a far greater power in our example. So if there's a choice you're making, let your example be truly radical.
1: Ooh. Jazz snaps. Jazz snaps.
2: I hope that made sense. As I was reading it, I'm like, does this all cohere? No, that's words was, I said. That was legit good. That wasn't just words. It's words on the airwaves. <laughs> They're out there. I write this stuff. Sometimes I don't go back and edit, and I'm like, we're in for a bumpy ride, folks. They're out this there This might now. be half-mingled ideas, uh, crease crumpled and crammed together. Benjamin, you often will do this off the cuff and sound as if you've prepared something amazing. So please tell us, what are your thoughts on We Are The World and how it holds up today? Oof, no pressure. Okay.
1: One of the main reasons we did this show was, one of the aspects of it, one of the hoped outputs, was that it taught people about things they loved, what inspired that thing, what the thing was that came before. And we're the world, just the idea that it exists, created this whole atmosphere around music, around, around the whole planet. That, you know, it showed that you had all these artists who came from completely different backgrounds, different upbringings, different worlds of wealth, different parts of the country, racially different, uh, gender, sexuality, everything. And they came together to make this one piece of art, so many of them, in one night, all night. I mean, how many of our listeners, how often do you pull literal all-nighters? Amazing that they made this thing together. And, like, there's been a lot of music critics and authors who've talked about, like, this song— really started the movement that pop music could be written to address much bigger issues, global issues, humanitarian Mm -hmm. concerns. And like, what a foundation to lay. That's huge. We talked about so many spinoffs, we could do so many more. But like, it just has. What do they even think about it or not? If you're a part of one of these groups, these guys kind of started it. I mean, to be fair, Do They Know It's Christmas kind of really kicked it off. Sure. But they're, they're both like right at the same time. I just love seeing so many huge major artists together in one room recording this. This is a terrible analogy. This plays my hand a little bit of uh, what, how old I am. But like, it's the Mario Kart or the Smash Brothers of its day. <laughs> it's the expendables for music in the 80s. Like every oh superstar came together to make this thing happen pretty much. And like, it's just, you didn't have a lot of those back in the day. Like you had Christmas specials on talk shows and Johnny Carson and stuff. But everyone in the room at one time doing one thing, then boom, gone. It's just like amazing. Yeah. You know, maybe I'm a little bit jaded, but I feel like all too often these days, these sort of like movements, these ideas start in a corporate office up in the C-suite in the boardroom. Hey, we got to do this thing. And then like right. suddenly at the end of the day, the office workers are doing the Harlem Shake or the Ice Bucket Challenge on <laughs> on Facebook right. uh, just, just to improve your social media engagement. Yeah. But like we are the world was the idea of the artists and the artists produced it from beginning to end. No one's in the video or even the documentary promoting their albums in the making of thing. No one even says like, hey, like I got to get back on the road like I'm touring right now. No one is there for themselves. Everyone is there for the right reason and like working together. And that's just awesome. Like, I don't feel like you Mm. get that a lot. There's so there's so many other layers with art these days that goes on on this scale. So it was just awesome. Absolutely. I think it's a great song. I think the production quality is great. I think it's catchy. I love that there's a bigger meaning to the song. I think that's really cool. I mean, to be fair, all music aims to do something. All music aims to move us in some sort of way. But this collaboration on a global scale that did have immediate and lasting impacts on real people in desperate need is amazing. I do think, I dare say, Christopher, my podcaster in crime, Mm. This could be one of the most radical achievements in pop culture from the 80s, which is why it makes it so awesome to go out on in our senior year.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think it became a no-brainer when we were talking about the structure of this season and planned it out, which again, we didn't do in previous seasons, but we have a condensed season. We're recording very fast and furiously. Oh my god. And we were like this is a no-brainer to go out on. It's going to come out at the end of the year. There's just going to be this nice sense of closure both to the year 2023, to our season format of the podcast. I'm glad it, it got this slot. It's a great final number to go out on for season 4. So very cool. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, if you could spare
1: me, you know, this is our senior year. We're signing our yearbooks. But before you and I run off to finish our letters to Santa or go for a sleigh ride, if yeah. you can maybe spare me 12 or fewer minutes, like the 12 days of Christmas, I want to do a little <laughs> bit of a math class for 80s high as a whole. We're, we're wrapping up our mm. senior year. It's sort of that montage flashback everything there's there's just a few there's a few things i'd love to talk about about our podcast as a
0: whole.
1: (laughs) where are they now ben and chris went on to run a taco bell uh only (laughs) with fiery hot sauce only no i've got five points i'd like to get through and i'm gonna get through them in less than 12 minutes for 12 days of christmas that's my goal i'm starting the timer all right meow
2: ambitious all right
1: you know one thing is i just want to say like we began 80s high during one of the probably if not one of the hardest times in modern history It was just this insane focal point of horrible things, like massive political leadership failure, a social safety net failure, climate crisis, and of course, like a massive global spanning health crisis. But in the midst of that, like you and I did whatever we could to be like a little warm beacon of like positive escapism. That's a helpful crush for a lot of people. We love pop culture. You and I love stuff from the 80s. And like this was our way to try and like help people. Mm. And I I, I, mm-hmm. th- I think that's great. I, I, I'm glad that we did that. I think that's really cool.
2: Well, and we didn't get this right away, but we came to it through doing the show. It's the things you forgot you loved. That became yeah. kind of our uh, sweet spot. It's the things that you don't immediately recall, but you have such fond memories of when someone brings it up. You're like, oh yeah, that right, thing, that's right. so cool. I totally forgot about it. I think it was a great sweet spot to find. I'm glad we found it. Yeah, yeah. That's a great
1: call out. The second most important thing is the only reason this show sounds good is because, Chris, you have put just a bonkers amount of time into editing and publishing the show, which legitimately would not have been possible without the sacrifice of your free time. You just, just wouldn't. Professional podcasters pay people. To edit this, amateur podcasters don't have the time or the skills or the money to do it, and that's why eh, it's pretty varied out there how good these things sound. But like you, legit had a second unpaid job for four years just with a summer break, and so like this just doesn't exist without you. So a million thanks from me and all of our listeners who enjoyed this show. Like thanks for sacrificing that time.
2: Well, that's awfully kind of you. I do appreciate that, but I dare say it doesn't happen without a collaboration. You know, you did create this show. This was your idea. I mean, we we developed it together, but this was your idea. And one of the things you pitched to me was like, hey, you know those conversations we have when we're hanging out and we start just like talking about stuff when we're on the couch in the living room, we're in the backyard, we're at a campsite or on a hike or whatever. And we just start talking about all this pop culture stuff. And we did it. You know, we've, we've hit some bumps along the way, but I have enjoyed being able to kind of work threw this together with you and really cherish the time we've spent together that we probably wouldn't have carved out otherwise, Yeah, it's true, it's true. What I hear from people who like this show so much is they love our inner play and you bring so much passion and enthusiasm to this. (laughs) I try. If you're the sweetness, I'm a little bit of the salt and, you know, I think we compliment each other really well in that regard, but um, really appreciate your ability to connect with creators. The reason we have sponsors that we've had amazing guest hosts and all this cool stuff is Ben has also put in a lot of extra time, putting out feelers and putting out calls to people and Working his back channels that he won't ever tell me
0: what they are because they're super
2: secret. Someday I'll tell you. And there's so much that he did that didn't go anywhere. We couldn't get a hold of a thing, or someone was like, <sighs> Oh, thank you so much for your interest. Aren't you sweet? Good day to you. You know, like there was so much of that, but your relentless pursuit of that, as well as our presence on Instagram and a lot of the outreach and really kind of just contact with our listeners outside of the show, that's all you, buddy. So, I appreciate your recognition. I return it to you in kind. It truly is a team effort. And uh, these four seasons have been, I think, truly magical to co-create with you. thanks, buddy. That's very sweet of you. I appreciate it.
1: Well, you waxed poetically. Now I'm off off on my 12 minutes of Christmas. (laughs) Sorry, I got to talk about (laughs) micro machines. There you go. So the the third thing I want to talk about is like, you know, after four years of really diving into 80s pop culture, I still think it's the most radical decade in cultural history. It is awesome. Like, there's just something happened that there was so much variety and freedom in creative expression all over the place. You know, there just were not a lot of cooks in the kitchen. It's just nuts how many milestones and like lightning in a bottle moments there were in music and TV and toys, movie, fashion, like. It just really is an incredible decade.
2: Yeah, and, and even though for somewhat sinister reasons, the growth of kid culture sure. and youth culture, to grow up in that time frame where finally there were things that were being presented to you or you saw childhood reflected in a lot of different yeah. ways. I mean, there's a lot of crazy stuff, of course. It's not a perfect decade by any stretch. No, no time frame is, but like it was such a cool time to to be a kid. And maybe yeah. everyone thinks out of when they grow up, but I do feel lucky to have been a, a kid of the 80s, for sure.
1: Oh, a thousand percent. Now, I could go on way too long about this, so I had to work really hard to keep it short. Okay. Like, there are several—there's there's a handful of episodes that really stayed out for me, topics that we did that were just
2: really— and we might have some overlap here, but yeah, oh, what good. you got?
1: Okay, so, Gremlins. Yes? For some reason, that we just vibed what? so well in that recording, and it was just so fun to talk about that movie.
2: That was one of our first, like, just ridiculous. We were both on, like, 110% episode. We, I think we finally found our groove as well. Yeah. Uh, again, those early episodes were just, you know, figuring the show out. But that's one of my favorites still to this day. 100% agree. American Gladiators?
1: Just because I oh, it yeah. was the first time we landed a legit interview with somebody from the property with Darren McBee yeah. who was Malibu. And I was just, like, giddy that we got to interview somebody from it.
2: Absolutely. Yeah, you were like, you did all the Ben stuff you also do on the show. You're like, Chris, I I need you to sit down. (laughs) Have you taken a deep breath? I I, got to, you know, he does all that setup. It's very Ben of you. And I was like, what's going on? You're like, I've got American Gladiator for the show.
1: And he turned out to be such a good
0: dude, too. It was great.
2: Very
1: nice, generous guy. Oh, my gosh. For very similar reasons, both Quantum Leap and Golden Girls, frankly oh, yeah. because just rediscovering how good and like timeless both those series are like how well yeah. they hold up that was awesome yeah i found dino riders so fun the golden triangle people riding dinosaurs shooting lasers
2: that was another really fun episode to do. It was a beast to put together, but it was really, I loved it. And Gerald, of course, offering his like childhood nostalgia clips of having all of those dinosaurs and his experience with it. That was a lot of fun. And then, of course, I shredded my vocal cords trying to do oh my Crulos, my Crulos um, uh, yeah. imitations. It was great. I've got two more.
1: Pat Benatar. Mm -hmm. Pat Benatar was like one of the first ones that we ventured into where I didn't really know a lot about the property, but it just kept coming up throughout the series. And I loved that the whole reason we did Pat Benatar is she unjustly was in, was not yet in the Hall of Fame, Rock and Roll
2: Hall of
0: Fame.
1: And by the end of 80s high, she was in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Like
0: uh, that is just a
2: cool journey to go that was our first blow up episode like the number of downloads on that was like crazy in comparison to everything else for some reason that one just like struck at the right time so that was the first one we were like whoa we did not expect (laughs) this one to do so much better than everything else but it just kind of took off no
1: a thousand percent like it was so cool and the last one i've got is fraggle rock
0: Oh yeah. Fraggle Rock yep.
1: hit in, in two unique ways. One, because like it was one of the one of the properties where I was actually like the right age for that thing in the eighties and I really authentically yeah. experienced it live. But also like Fraggle Rock was so in the spirit of why we did this show and Henson was mm-hmm. so in the show of just like trying to warmth and education and joy and kindness. And it just it felt like it was a really good almost circle Venn diagram of what we tried to do and what Fraggle Rock accomplished.
2: Absolutely. I would add just a couple more things in there that I love so much. I was going to ask. I want to know what else you have. Uh, So Unsolved Mysteries, I do have to throw in there. That was my very first topic choice. I love that topic. That show was so great. I loved what I learned about the show. It is our second episode. Ben, I would go back and re-record in a heartbeat. I think we could do the episode <laughs> so, so much, much better. better. Yeah. But I just loved that discussion and again a revisit of something that probably saw when I was too young but was so cool and intriguing to this day and I you know I'm a big fan of mysteries and you know all that kind of stuff and it, it just ran the gamut which was really cool. And then similarly to kind of like What is it? Finding, exploring, figuring things out. The Choose Your Own Adventure episode. Yeah. A, we did not realize that by choosing that adventure, we eventually would connect with uh, Choose Your Own Adventure, Choose Co today and have this great partnership with them. They've sponsored this season. They've been amazing to work with and so cool. And so it led to something awesome. But also, even if it didn't, just to be able to revisit those books and learn about R.A. Montgomery, who created them yeah. and where it came from and all of that kind of stuff was just really cool. And it was one of those that, you know, we can do movies and TV shows and music and all of that is fantastic. But this was one of those that was just a little different. And I always appreciated those episodes where we got to do something just slightly different or unique, right? Where we either talked about a big broad thing like slasher films or you know, whatever. Yeah, right, right, right. So Ben, those were some of the episodes I loved. I mean, I could talk about this till- Right? We, we go through all 70 of them. We should probably right? just put a hard breaks on. You had a list though, what else is on that list?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, the show is all about being very positive, very fun, very warm and and a good time. That's what we're shooting for. Yeah. And off air, you and I together and myself, like four years of really thinking hard about different types of art in the 80s. I've had a lot of like, shockingly very reflective and philosophical thoughts about Mm. art Mm -hmm. and what what culture and history is like. And that could be a whole nother episode of 80s high all by itself. Just my philosophical ramblings. On art, But I'll just I'll put one of them in here because I think it might be the most important one. Again, our show really wanted to focus on the positive of the 80s, because that was really comforting escapism during the, the COVID pandemic and everything else that was going on that was made made life very challenging for a lot of people around the world for the last four or five years. But as you and I would joke and never made it into another episode, really horrible stuff happened in the 80s too. Yeah. a lot of really horrible stuff. It's important to remember that every age in history is complicated. Every age in history has really great, wonderful advances in humanity and science and art and literature. But also, like, atrocities and horrible things happen, too, all the time and everything in between. It's just—it's a lot more fun to talk about the good stuff. It's a lot easier to talk about the fun stuff. Yeah. And I think we've seen at home and abroad over the last 10 years— The very dangerous and the very destructive desire to return to an earlier time. Mm. This false belief that the before times were better. And Chris and I have spent a lot of time over the last four years studying the '80s, And we can tell you authentically, it's not definitively better than today. It's as just complex as it is today. Just different problems, just different good stuff. So it's fun to revisit this stuff. It's fun to think about these things that were part of really good, warm times of our childhoods and growing up or being a teenager or whatever age you were in the 80s. But do a self check and never convince yourself that it was a better time and that you should take actions beyond maybe collecting some phone paraphernalia and rewatching movies and music to try and return to that time.
0: Yeah.
2: No, I think that's great. And I'm really glad we started this entire show off uh, talking about nostalgia. Like that's our first episode, right? Like we we just said, okay, before we even talk about a particular topic, let's just talk about this idea of nostalgia. And in a way it became our central thesis of the show. And, you know, we've said this throughout, like nostalgia is a well that has seductive power Mm. and should therefore only be revisited briefly. I think by our very nature, I I do think this is evolutionary in some cases, it's biological. This lens looking back highlights the good and glosses over the bad, as you mentioned. But it it can, at its extreme, distract us from looking forward. Uh, We don't want to be regressive. And then, you know, you think of like the proverbial narcissist who surrenders all things to gaze at his own beauty in the lake reflection, Mm. Dying because of something he will never have, but so badly desires, and so on a more philosophical kind of heady level, part of this is just how our brains work. And there's a a warm comfort. What is that? Huga? What's that? uh, The practice in like Nordic countries of like like cozyness. Yeah, they're just being nice and warm in the cold winter months. Nostalgia has big huga energy. Everybody, right? Like it's really trying to like bring you in. And it can be comforting, but I, uh, as Ben, I think, so eloquently put it, we can't languish there too much or think that that's where the future exists because it doesn't. And so hopefully we're able to have these brief revisits, enjoy it, bring back fond memories, and then move forward to create new memories. And perhaps in the spirit of we are the world, uh, change things that are, are yeah. broken and not you know, good. Know where our power is. We all have it in different ways. So use that power wisely. It might be in your shoulders,
1: shimmying through a bar, telling some dude to get off.
0: We are young, no one
1: can tell us we're wrong. Ugh. so good. You know, for my final word for the season, I just I just want to say like This podcast was awesome because I got, you know, it's thinking of all the people that were involved in the production of this show, all the way down to people who took our class of 80s high surveys. It was just Mm. a blast getting to connect with you, one of my very best friends on the regular, do the show, but also shoot the breeze in between stuff. I learned so much about the things that I loved, but also so much about things that I missed. I totally missed in the 80s. I learned so much doing the show. Yeah. And I loved hearing from our listeners. Uh, for some of them, how it was inspiring them to create their own art or how they were learning things or that it was actually making them laugh. And, you know, they were feeling good and they were having a good time listening to our show or, or they even thought of exploring parts of pop culture that they had never really given a chance before. Like we actually made some people do some things and feel some things. And that's, that's really cool. I mean, at the end of the day, if I had to mic drop on 80s High, I'm just really proud of our work. And I will value our time together and what we made together for the rest of my life.
2: That's awesome. <laughs> Talk about making people do things. Uh, we may be finishing this season of 80s High, but I've got a lot of homework because there was so much oh that God. we talked about that like, never saw that, didn't see this, didn't do yeah. this. So I I, saw, I got a lot of catch up to do. I might have to have a super senior year here at uh, 80s High. Yeah. <laughs> But no, I, I agree. And, you know, I'm glad you mentioned other people's voices because there's so many people who help make this show what it is. And I just love to give them a quick shout out here. I really do want to give a big thank you to every single guest we had yes, who joined seriously.
1: us. Thank you for being a part of the show.
2: Every single one of them lent some cool experience. Again, whether they sent in clips or they were a co-host or we did an interview and interspliced words in. It was always great to expand our circle of voices and just get different perspectives in. Love that so much. Uh, In the same vein, everyone who did morning announcements. Yeah, we were bugging a bunch of people sometimes. We were running short. We needed them. We took a break in season three. I'm so glad they came back this season. I crack up every time I get a recording and I'm like, oh, this is going to be so good when we pop it in to the final episode. So thanks everyone for doing that. The last few things also, Alex Goddard, She crushed it with the show art. Oh, yeah. Thank you, Alex. You know, early on, we talked to her. We were like, hey, this was our idea. She came up with some concepts and finally just really nailed it with this one. And so, um, Alex, you know, we give you a shout out in every kind of show outro, but just wanted to give her another big props here. Very good. And then, of course, our banging theme song by Greg Reed. Oh, thanks, Greg. Killing it, killing it, killing it, Greg. Uh, And then Chad Bumford just added that extra judge with the uh, with belting out those rap vocals vocals. again it, it is a collective contribution and ben and i i think are i can speak for both of us are just so thankful for everybody who has tuned in and supported the show in any way possible you all friends are amazing thank you i love it and while this is the end of season four we're leaving the hall lights on to potentially pop back in at some point and revisit even more from that magical decade So thanks for tuning in, friends. And who knows, maybe we'll catch you in detention or in summer school on the next episode of 80s High. Thanks, everyone, for listening to 80s High podcast by Ben and Chris. Our theme song is by Greg Reed with vocals by Chad Bumford. Show artwork is by Alex Goddard at alexgoddarddesign.com. If you like the show, please support us by passing a note to a friend in your next class. Also, you can rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts or Spotify to help
0: spread the rumor. Stay radical.